Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 26 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and with me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. G'day mate, how you doing man? Well, we're suffering in the heat here mate, we've had a pretty warm week down here in uh, in Melbourne. Yeah, it has been pretty warm, lots of turbulent wind, although I did manage to get a uh, crew a pretty good flight yesterday, it was out in the Yarra Valley and uh, it was myself and the pilot and a couple, it's what we call an exclusive flight. Typically that's where the guy proposes to the girl and sure enough he did. And she said yes, maintaining our 100% success rate out in the valley and the city. We haven't lost a proposal yet, mate. No, you're the man, Grant. You're the man. Oh, man. Even on the ones where it's lots of people on the plane, it's not an exclusive. We've, we've had the 100%. We, we, we aim to please. We make sure it's that romantic setting. Now, folks, we're going to give the news and comment format a little bit of a rest this week as we catch up with some friends of the podcast and clear a couple of interviews from the vault, as it were. Owen's up drops in to update us on the progress of his preparations for his uh, there and back tour, along with some other things that he's been up to since last we spoke. David Vanderhoof is back with another one of his history segments. There's a brief chat with one of our listeners from Sydney who recently popped down to Melbourne for a bit of a visit. And Bear Sheffers rejoins us with a report from his recent uh, RA Oz activities. And finally, we're introducing a new segment this week, which we're pretty excited about, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later on. But for now, let's head off with our first item. Yay. Well, folks, we're trying to think of an appropriate way to introduce the next story. We were thinking of Peanut of the Week, maybe Drongo of the Week, maybe even Dropkick of the Week. But, uh, Grant, uh, maybe we'll just put that up on the forums and leave it for uh, people to offer suggestions. But uh, this is not really so much a news... Well, it is a news story. and we, I know we said we were going to give that a rest this week, but it's a bit more of a whiskey tango foxtrot. And uh, this one uh, comes just quickly from the Northern Territory News and the ABC News. And uh, it's just talking about a, uh, a gentleman up in uh, the Northern Territory, up at Darwin there by the looks, who was... Uh, a little desperate to uh, stop his wife or girlfriend from departing on an aircraft. That's right. They uh, live on Bickerton Island, which is about 700 kilometres east of Darwin. Carlson Barrow was at home when he heard that his promised bride was leaving him and had already chartered a plane. Apparently, he grabbed an eight-foot-long spare and a machete and ran to the airstrip to stop her from leaving. Mm. So uh, some reports have said it was a four-pronged fishing spear, uh, which is makes it even scarier than the normal, it's a spear. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty lethal. And yeah, apparently the uh, the plane was sitting on the runway with the pilot and four passengers inside. Uh, he demanded the pilot not start the plane and let his wife off and hit the windscreen with the machete. Uh, apparently the pilot got out and went some distance away until the guy left. Uh, yeah, three times when he went when he tried to get back into the plane, uh, Barra threatened him again, and eventually community members convinced uh, the guy to leave. The pilot took the plane and passengers away, reported it to the police, and apparently he managed to do over $6,000 damage to the plane. Hmm, not good, and uh, it obviously uh, ended up in court, and, uh, well, the gentleman probably will be hearing not much more than this for the foreseeable future. Yeah, he's he's got 10 months in jail with a non-parole period of eight months. But, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, as was pointed out, this is a pretty serious thing, not just for damage to aircraft and, and uh, threatening people's lives and so on, but also if pilots and their aircrafts, aircraft don't fly into these remote areas around the north end and uh, the islands and, and scattered mainland areas, they're pretty much for a lot of these people coming in by air is about the only reliable way of getting to and from food, medicine, support, all those kind of things. They're either too far to go by sea or by land, all this kind of stuff, and it's much easier by air. So if pilots are unwilling to fly to these places and airlines aren't willing to send aircraft in, well, it just makes the community un- unlivable, they say. So that was one of the reasons why uh, they uh, they really threw the book at the guy. Yeah, we do sort of uh, make light of it a little bit because uh, on first reading it uh, almost sounds a bit uh, humorous, but obviously it is quite serious and uh, we, you know, we can't have this sort of thing going on. It's, uh, it's a long way to anywhere when you're getting up around the Northern Territory, so uh, flying is the, the obvious 
uh, as Grant says, is the obvious uh, preferred method of travel. So yeah, it's it's definitely one uh, one to chalk up for the pilot. I mean, normally your biggest problems are livestock on the runway, poor conditions of runways, people trying to put too much gear on the plane, or the occasional deadly snake. Things like that are the biggest problems that you encounter: uh, saltwater crocodiles in some parts. But yes, now you've got a guy with an eight foot four four pronged fishing spear and a machete. That really adds to the fun. Anyway, we'll leave that one there. We'll make that a bit of a uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot segment, Grant. And we're going to head off now straight into the interview we recorded a couple of nights ago with Owens Up. Excellent. Well, the weather up in Sydney has been very inclement, folks. We've seen floods and storms and all sorts of things, but that's not enough to keep our next guest down. It's been a while since we spoke to him, and it's Owens Up. G'day, Owen. G'day. How are you going, fellas? Welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Excellent. It's been a long four months. It's hard to believe it's been four months, but yes, uh, pretty much four months to the day was the last time that we uh, had a chat with you. You're dead right. Time flies. Time flies. Yeah. Oh, there's so much going on, isn't there? Yeah, we've been busy, obviously, with the planning the flight around Australia and, and obviously maintaining a work life and a family life as well. It's a, a fair old mix. Oh, yeah, you got to hate it when reality gets in the way of your fun. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look like you've had much time for sleep anyway. We're just looking at the uh, There and Back website and it's got some uh, some great progress shots of the Jabiru and it looks like it's coming along uh, pretty steadily. Yeah, it's coming along at a rate of knots. It hit the assembly line only a matter of weeks ago and uh, from what I can understand, it'll probably be finished in, in late March. And, uh, wow. The flight itself taking place in May, so that should give it a good opportunity to do a few runs here and there that'll um, allow us to get some good fuel burn figures, oil consumption figures, true airspeeds for power settings and all the things that allow you to um, plan more accurately. So that, that'll be a real bonus. But it definitely is It's coming along and the speed at which these people can make the aircraft, I think that's one of the, the things on the website. It allows people to see that firsthand, how an aircraft comes together because often it's just a, a showroom piece and they don't see the, the behind the scenes. Yeah, I find it fascinating just looking here that they they put the engine in at such an early point. I would have always, well, I never really thought about it, but I, I guess I would have thought they'd have put the motor in last, but it looks like they've, they've sort of, well, they've done it here quite early in the piece and sort of built the body around it. That caught me a little bit surprised too, because whenever you look at uh, warbird restorations, and that a major landmark is the mating of the engine with the airframe and that generally occurs fairly late in the piece they have the supporting systems done up on the airframe and then they connect the two but obviously the technique here is somewhat different but it obviously works they've built nearly 2,000 of the airplanes so, <laughs> um, I'm sure they've got it down pat yeah well they built a pretty good airplane I was sitting in a, in a Jabiru 170 just the other day down at uh, Turidan and uh, yeah it was that was pretty good I, I, pretty funky how the seats are part of the fiberglass molding of the whole aircraft and you looks like you can wind the uh, pedal back and forth i didn't have to worry i'm pretty pretty long in the legs so i had no problems fitting in that that's a feature that is becoming more and more prevalent in light aircraft i'm finding it was fixed seats with movable rudder pedals it has been a, a feature of, of trainers in years gone by but it's more and more becoming a feature of modern aircraft the diamond aircraft have it uh, the jabiru the new skycatcher and piper sport are both designed with fixed seats and movable rudder pedals mm. it, it offers a degree of integrity to the airframe and and furthermore it, it sort of does eradicate a lot of workings because the, the seat adjustments obviously have a lot of mechanisms behind them and inherently a degree of danger that they can slide back on takeoff. 
take off. Yeah, well, look what was happening with Cessna in the old days uh, with all the product liability for 20, 30-year-old aircraft that a pin lets go and the seat fa- falls back and that's the cause of the accident. And, you know, despite the fact it's a, it's an old aircraft, they were still able to sue uh, back before the, they changed everything back in the 70s over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the, the, the fixed seat to me makes it a lot of sense. It really does. It's safe, it's secure, it's integral to the airframe. And um, I've flown grobs, jabberies, diamonds, etc. And that I've probably found four or five different types that have it and I've had no trouble finding a seating position to fly the aircraft. So I think I think it's the way to go. The only hassle I've heard is uh, one of our listeners, uh, Ms. Dark Sarcasm on Twitter, she's she's learning the uh, learning to fly in a jabber and needs to get the odd cushion just so she's in a good position yeah. to see everything. Yeah, I saw people having to get cushions in Cherokees and that along the way too. So I think it's for anyone who's a little bit shorter, they, they recognise that and they pretty quickly work out what they need to do to get themselves in the right spot. So, no, I, I think it's it's a growing trend. And as I said, it's a little bit of a case of back to the future, much like control columns are these days. There's more and more aircraft appearing with sticks as opposed mm-hmm. to control wheels. Yep. And I think that is a, a little, once again, a case of back to the future where design is drifting back to, to the origins of aviation in many ways. It's one of the things I always liked about, I did most of my time in uh, 172s and uh, one of the things I actually liked about them being a big guy is the uh, I don't know whether it's an actual uh, whether it's actually the case or not but it certainly feels like that you're sitting more upright in the in the high wing or at least in the Cessna the way they've got that set up you sort of felt a little bit more reclined back in the in the Warrior or any of the other low wings that I found yeah well if you've got enough time for a seven hour show we can get into the high wing low wing podcast <laughs> debate I'm sure and you, you, you'll get it bombarded by listeners because that, that one's gone on since Pontius was a pilot, I think. Um, I, I, I just do not go there. Both geometric formats have their own advantages and disadvantages, and really you fly the aeroplane as it's designed. But yeah, I've heard some remarkable reasons why one is better than the other, but I just don't go there. <laughs> the, the best I ever saw was a little one-page cartoon, and it's a guy in a Cherokee, and he's ripped the wings off the um, off the plane going through a gate, and it, the, the caption is, funny the sales guy said it to do everything my Cessna would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I tend to like biplanes that way. You don't have to compromise. Yeah, yeah. You got a spare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like sitting on the fence, is it? No. Well, I think no, it's like it, the I think it's like the young lady in one of the uh, uncontrolled airspace disclaimer clips says, uh, "Guys, you know, real pilots fly Cessnas. That's all there is to it." Yeah, that that'd probably get you more input from your <laughs> listeners as well. Something like that. Playing so crazy again right on that <laughs> <laughs> Got those paling marks. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll straddle all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last plane I flew was a warrior, so there you go. I'm not fussy. Yeah. I, I, I am not fussy at all. If it gets my bum above the ground, I want to be in it. That's the bottom line. Actually, it really the, is. Hey. If it gets you airborne in a safe fashion, then... Who really cares? You adapt your flying and your techniques to suit the airframe. <laughs> I don't know. I think the last thing I was flying, and people would know this if they'd listened to last episode, it just keeps saying things like, whoop, whoop, terrain, pull up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good thing. <laughs> it's no. funny. He said that, and I looked over at the instructor. He goes, oh, that's all right. No problem. I'm thinking, all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, there was a classic accent when someone said, shut up, gringo, and then the sound of impact. So, um, Famous last no, words. You, you, you heed those warnings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Now, getting back to uh, there and back, uh, Owen, how's the uh, the planning for the route and uh, where you're stopping all that sort of stuff? Is that all coming together nicely? Yeah, the, the, well, well, the aeroplane developing on the website's fairly dramatic. The, the planning is obviously one of those engine room issues that is a lot of work but doesn't appear as such to, to um, the general public or the website as such. But you really have to take in a 
heck of a lot of considerations, be it sector length, endurance of the aircraft, availability of fuel, cost of fuel, terrain. Sometimes a short dogleg will give you a, an advantageous waypoint en route between two major ports. And once again, trying to tie in points of historical significance. So ultimately, you end up with a route that is a little bit of a compromise in terms of a circumnavigation to aviation waypoints, but you can never... Co- on the operational safety aspect. So um, that's what we've ended up with now. And it's a finalised route and it departs on May 5th. But there's some really interesting stories developed even since I spoke to you guys last that have amended the route and led to new waypoints. And um, I've I've included Hamilton in Victoria and being an ex-ANSET driver, um, the significance of Hamilton is obvious. And they've got a a museum there and a Fokker Universal, which was um, Reg ANSET's first aircraft's. Not the actual one, I believe, but an example of the type. So there's been some subtle amendments. The overall map that you see on the website does reflect generally where the routing is, but there's some subtle changes to it to take in a few more points of aviation significance. That's cool. It's good you're getting to Hamilton and the the birth birthplace of ANSET, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, there's a it's a compromise because there's a million waypoints in this country. It's just so rich in aviation history. But along the way, there are some fascinating stories. There's major runways that are now just main streets in towns. There are <laughs> tragic tales of um, early aerial services that were never meant to be. And I'm going to one of the homesteads that ties in with one of those stories is my plan at this stage. And there's interest along the way that I think extends far beyond the aviation community. I think people in general would be interested in in where our modern industry has come from. And that'll be reflected in in this route, hopefully. But as I said, it it takes a degree of planning because you think, gee, there to there would be great. And then you realise, yeah, that's out of range or, or I have to look for fuel. Oh, gee, they only fill from drums and that's 200 litres at a time and the capacity is 135 litres in the aircraft. And so you have to massage all those aspects around. But in a, in a funny sort of way, that is also part of the fun. Getting over 40 whack charts out to, to start drawing lines on was was a challenge in itself. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they have electronic devices that can do that all for you these days, Owen. Have you considered yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, being, being technologically advanced, I, I did consider that. I, I've been very fortunate with Champagne PC planning software where once I had drafted it on the maps, because I do think that does give you, firstly, a backup should there be a technical failure with GPS on route, but it also gives you an almost tangible and intimate sense of the flight path as you're planning it. You say, oh, gee, that's just offset, or there's the terrain, I can see it on a topographical chart. But once you come to the flight planning stage, once you've decided upon that route, the flight planning software is absolutely amazing. This is the first time I've used it, in all honesty. What would take significant hours is reduced to singular hours. And um, at the end of it, you print out a flight plan with tracks, distances, routes, etc., and it's, it's it's amazing. So I am getting on board with technology. Don't worry, guys. But, um, <laughs> it, it, I am also doing it old school to start with that the planning software has been fantastic cool so so yeah use the maps the whack charts and all that to get an idea of where you want to go and then um, use the the software just to lock it all down yeah and, and along the way it, it clears up some of those fuel issues because you'll say this is where I want to cover it within a certain day and you'll just put it into the flight planning software and then it'll go fuel detail and you'll look at that and it'll go well just a second it's saying that I'm minus x liters at this point <laughs> all right that means I need to have a fuel stop prior to long reach okay well I will go into emerald and fuel yep. up okay if I fill it up I plug in 135 liters at emerald bang and that tells me the margin I'll have when I get to long reach now I could work that all out with a whiz wheel and, and a flight plan but those 
sorts of calculations have really sped the process of the planning up along yeah, the way. So, um, yeah, a combination of old-style technique and also the modern technology, I think, covers both bases. Yeah, yeah. And gives you a bit of uh, family time back. Oh, certainly, certainly. Because some, some of the, the planning aspects in terms of filling out a flight plan and that which automatically defaults once you've planned the route within these these software systems can be a laborious task. And and then you make an error and go, Ugh, do you screw it up or do you what what do I do now? Whereas there have been alterations in the route and I've gone back and said, oh, stage three, I'll actually track via this point. Now it's, it's no big deal. You just insert waypoint, click to that point and create waypoints. There's places I want to go that aren't actually recognized on charts. They're latitudes and longitudes and nothing much more. And you can create the waypoint within in the database and these things for me are just fantastic because then they fall straight into the flight plan and at the end I punch out a flight plan on the printer and it's ready to go. Excellent. Uh, you'll be taking all that with you in a laptop I take it so you can do updates yeah, as you're flying. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to have for each stage I'll have a, a what you'd say a hard copy which I'll have flight plans and supporting data and alternate airfield information etc etc uh, and then the digital copy of that will all be in a, a small laptop as well which I can modify en route so I will have both electronic and paper copies which um, when you're going in the outback is probably not a bad move as well because you never know what where you end up in terms of power sources and that if a place is running on a generator and it falls over that night you can't say well I can't depart tomorrow because there's been generator failure at the homestead or something similar so it it pays to have both I think it gives you an awareness of both sides of the story as well and for me it doubles the fun. And it's, uh, it's good that that Jabiru can carry yourself, all your gear, full fuel, etc. I take it there's a bit of margin there. Yeah, it's it's perfect that way. It's um, With one on board, it gives total flexibility. Uh, the fuel assessment is basically when you land somewhere, full tanks. And yeah. that, that, that is another consideration that mm. takes a lot of, I won't say stress out of the situation, but a, a lot of the calculation out of it. You know that if I stop at these waypoints I can fill the aircraft up with the um, kit that I've got on board and myself and it's right to go. Excellent. It's definitely got some good carrying capacity because you're getting the 230 aren't you? That's correct yeah the 230 yeah. which can be flown as a four seater and uh, known as the 430 but this um, is a 230 with two seats and uh, a very handsome space for storage behind that yeah. row of two seats and a side door to access the kit as well. Not not that I'll be you know packing a caravan load of stuff I'll be <laughs> I'll be travelling fairly light, but you do have to consider things such as um, survival equipment, first aid kits, and obviously crossing the Kimberley and that I learnt some years ago that you need a good supply of water, and generally speaking, water weighs a kilogram per litre, so um, you uh, want to have a a fair ration of that on hand as well, so it, it meets all the requirements and ticks all the boxes and as an aircraft to undertake a flight like this. Cool. What's the um, the endurance of the aircraft generally? What are you planning for, say, your longest leg? Yeah, longest leg, rather than the endurance of the aircraft, which is, is really looking at 135 <laughs> litres usable, burning about 26 an hour, so you could comfortably fly four hours with over an hour reserves. But generally speaking, I'm looking at doing two and a half to three hours as a maximum sector length before I stop and refuel. As much a a consideration of of fuel management, it is as fatigue management as well, because you Mm -hmm. want to get out, stretch your legs. When you're flying back-to-back days, you don't want to continually take yourself to sort of fatigue limits as well. So to stop every two or three hours, get out, talk with some people, stretch the legs and take in the scenery as well. 
of where you're stopping if you just continually plow on plow on for the sake of making the lap then you're probably going to miss a lot as well and and every time you stop at these outback airports i learned this a long time ago when i was flying charter is that there's interesting people out there stop talk to them learn about their countryside learn about where they are and where they live it's so different from where we are in the urban environment that if you just said oh look i'll bypass that and stretch the legs a bit further you're probably doing yourself a disservice and when you're getting to these destinations along the route owen are they have you heard much about plans for uh, welcoming committees this sort of thing yeah that's now that i've locked in the um dates and the waypoints that is something i'm going to follow up now i'll probably do it with through local community groups such as the Lions Club and Rotary Club. But in in the same sense, you have to be a little guarded that you don't burn yourself out as well if you've only got 12 hours Mm -hmm. layover somewhere because there'll be a a, a bit of a ritual that I'm actually practising already in terms of recharging batteries, downloading film from the hard disk to a backup and getting adequate sleep and checking the plans over and the weathers, etc. for the next day. So um, there will be certain points along the way where definitely I'll be stopping and, and chatting with people and that. But once again, it's got all going to be a balance of getting the job done within 16 days in a, in a I'll say, conservative and safe fashion. Yeah, yeah, yep. that's pretty intense schedule there. Yeah, yeah, particularly VFR because you can have the variable of weather thrown upon you. So that, that's been another aspect of the planning is that for many of the critical routes where weather could play a part, I've actually planned alternate routes Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep me on schedule if need be. And I've also built in a few days of margin en route that I can make up at the latter stages if, if there are delays due to weather because you, you don't want to be put under pressure from changeable things like that. Yeah, no, you don't want to get their itis. <laughs> no, no, I lost that a long, long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, enjoy the journey. That's what that's this is all about. So uh, apart from all this planning for uh, for your trip with uh, there and back, I uh, opened up my most recent copy of uh, Oz Aviation, Australian Aviation. Our and, favourite magazine. Yeah, favourite magazine. And um, <laughs> you've done a, a pretty detailed report here on an air test that you did on the uh, on a Diamond aircraft. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. The, the Diamond 20 I flew and I'd flown the Diamond 40 before that and both of these aircraft are pretty impressive little trainer tourers. Cool. Now these, these are like all composite very streamlined, thin wasp-wasted aircraft, aren't they? Yeah, it, it, there's um, a, a move towards that, obviously, away from the traditional rivets and sheet metal airframes. And through these structures, they've got increased strength at a lighter weight, which I, I, the first aircraft I really struck that were going down that road with the Grob trainers back in the 90s. And by virtue of that, they've got very good performance. The other thing about it is that, particularly in the case of Diamond, for many years, automotive design has been taking on board safety more and more and more and, and working on how can they build a better roll barrier for the car and harness strength, etc., etc. And aviation hasn't in many avenues followed suit, but Diamond have, have put in some very good safety uh, points that the fuel tanks are between two carbon fibre spars so that should there be uh, any ground impact, it, a lot of the old metal aircraft have the fuel tank integral to the leading edge and it's one of the first things to rupture. Same with the actual cabin is in, how would it be best described? It's a a shell as such, but it it has integral strength. The fixed seats have integral strength. And they've taken a lot of ideas, I guess, that have stemmed from the automotive industry to enhance cabin safety and the seating, etc. And it's it's really good to see. So they've got the enhanced performance due to the power to weight ratio, but they've also kept a very strong direction when it comes to safety. And, And that was probably one of the major things that struck me about the Diamond was the thought that they had implemented much of this uh, safety culture in their aircraft. 
you talk about the performance of the aircraft and I'm just comparing it you know like most people I started flying in a Cessna 152 back in the day pilots that are, are, are coming in and, and perhaps starting off in aircraft like this there's a marked increase in performance I'm just looking at some of the stats here you're saying a cruise speed at 75 percent power is 138 knots that's that's yeah. a, a huge increase in speed over you know your more traditional training platforms even the, and the stall speed is, is is quite low at 45 knots given that so it's 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 impressive you know new technology obviously but you've got the new materials you've got the new technology and and you just have to look at the design just look at the wing and and the winglets and the thought that's gone into it that's worked out getting the most out of the airframe that that section aft of the cockpit that leads down to the tail the only purpose it has is to hold the tail on yeah there's not Uh, much of it that's that's why it's very narrow waisted but it's very strong it really didn't serve much purpose you had a big hollow in most older style aircraft with just a few cables passing through it so they've made the most of the minimum yeah and all that was also it increased the uh the wetted area, as they call it, the surface area, that the prop wash would affect. Yeah, certainly. There's a lot of technology that is coming on board. They've got ones that are better engine technology too that leads to better uh, combustion of the air air fuel ratio. There's a number of initiatives that these new aircraft are using that um, enhance the performance. But you're dead right. When you see those sorts of figures for 75% power out of the horsepowerage that the engine has, you you really are a a generation above what we first learnt on 20, 30 years ago. Do you think we'll see a swing back uh, towards this type of aircraft going forward, you know, over the more traditional training uh, aircraft such as, say, the Tomahawk or the, or the the 150, 152. I mean, surely this is the way that schools will go going forward, you'd think? I think it's really the only way it can go because those aircraft ultimately will run out of airframe life. Mm-hmm. In many cases, the, the Tomahawk has a finite life on it and the 152s are, are getting very senior as well. So I think ultimately you will be seeing replacements. I think the growth of LSA aircraft will really take the primary trainer role because yep. as good as a lot of these aircraft these new composite aircraft are, there are still some fairly hefty price tags associated with them so that they tend to lead to fleet purchases for major schools and universities. But for the the smaller institutions, I think you will see a, a migration towards LSA aircraft Particularly now, Piper have entered the field with the Piper Sport. Mm, that's big you know, news. Only announced in the last month or two. Yep. And uh, the Skycatcher is starting to reach delivery stage this year. I think in the very fundamental ab initio training realm, I think that will be the way that it goes. And for those who can't afford the, um, you know, like the Skycatcher is a hundred thousand US, and you know the, the whole point of, I know in the US have been saying a few times that the whole point of LSA was to create affordable aircraft, but they've gone for high high tech glass cockpits. And and it's hundred thousand dollars, but you could still get a lot of aircraft for less than thirty to fifty thousand US. So that in, in that area, yeah, not a whole lot of new aircraft though. That's the the catch with them. Uh, if you look at a comparable trainers that are coming out in these generations, a lot of them are still sitting up around two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars US. So they are still relatively um, cheap compared to some of the other aircraft that are coming on board the LSA models. But the fact is, even if you could buy a fleet of Piper Tom hawks with a reasonable life on them they are becoming 30 40 year old airplanes but i think that the skycatcher and the piper sport offer the traditionalists a a bridge to change over at this stage because there is still the reservation for one reason or another of a number of people of lsa 
And um, having done my, my RIA conversion fairly recently, I must admit I'm a little bit of a convert. I think it's a, a tremendous way to enjoy flying for fun. And the LSA, I think, yeah, the, there will be a number of aircraft that appear on the scene beyond the scope of the Skycatcher and the Piper Sport. But I think in the short term, those people who are Ford men and Holden men and don't want to let their 152s or Cherokees go, this cracks the door to them. And yeah. I think that's, and if similarly, the students who are going to come and fork out money to go flying will still, for a generation or so, have a perception of, well, we want to fly a real aeroplane, a Cessna or a Piper. And until they get the culture changed, they'll still perceive some of these other types as light light sports which is is not a true reflection of the aircraft and it isn't really fair but it you have to recognize the culture for what it is and there's a bit yep. of a push on too to get the uh the max weight limit of the uh, lsa's up a bit too i think yeah I, I don't know how that'll go i think for the moment they, they're sort of the, the regulatory bodies are looking and saying, well, we're happy with it sitting at this weight. Let's just see how it works out. And even so, sports aviation is really going quite well in, in Australia. I wrote a story recently and the membership of Recreational Aviation Australia, RAA, has increased by 78% in the last three years. Yeah, they're doing a lot of stuff reaching out to younger pilots as well. They're doing a, a reach out to kids where they're, you can start doing your training, you can start doing your theory and by the time you start it when you're like, 12 to 14 area and when you're 16 you're ready to go for your solo yeah you can actually go solo 15 when you're oh, 15 sweet yeah, so cool. so it's it, it and the really the youth is the future of any industry so initiative there is very smart as well as as needed so yeah i, I think raa sports category aircraft lsa will take a, a sizable role in in future training i think the um top price tag training touring aircraft will still find a very strong market in fleet purchases for major schools but ultimately you're looking at a whole new world of aeroplanes i think within the next 20 years or so because you just can't expect the cessnas and the pipers of, of yesteryear to still be keeping on that they'll still be in private ownership but standing up to the workload of a a flying school or a, a charter company as, as such is just hard work. We also can't get the situation where um, you know Fred comes from work and he jumps out of his BMW and jumps into a, a Cessna that's as old as he is. Well, that, that's one thing I've cited for a long time and I've spoken to people who actually drive those 700 series BMWs and they've gone to some of the GA airfields and, and waited at the counter for 20 minutes to be attended yeah. to and then been passed a cold cup of coffee and palmed off to someone, gone out to a beaten up aircraft and this particular individual said they looked at the aeroplane and thought i'm not going to spend x dollars an hour got back in their car and they said they drove over to um, middle harbour and took up sailing lessons the same day huh. yeah and a nice nice new uh, ceramic you know like fiberglass yeah. boat yeah, yeah. so yeah. if aviation wants to to really attract that market you've got to have the the product to to attract them yeah. and, and i've had that firsthand a number of people say to me look i'd love to do it but yeah and that is a common factor yeah. why they, they haven't gone down that road yeah, the newer tech, the BRS parachutes, the better-looking aircraft, all that kind of stuff really helps. Well, like, well I, I was up at the Wide Bay Air Show last July, and you walked along this line, and there was new Jabiroos, there were Brumbies, and then there was Cirrus, there were, yeah. oh, was a Liberty or whatever. And these aircraft were all new and shiny, and the avionics inside were remarkable, and everything from a fairly low price tag through to advanced aircraft like the Cirrus with tremendous performance and synthetic vision technology and all sorts of things. And you think really. It's it's another world. It's it's a new generation. It comes with a cost, but it's you can't go forward unless you're prepared to take those steps. It's, it's good to see though. It's good to see that there is a bit of um, innovation going on in the in the light aircraft industry. It was stagnant for years. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, we want to move on, Owen, here. You've been, uh, as if you're not doing enough things to make us jealous, uh, you've also been up flying with our friend Matt Hall. We're not worthy. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't got the, the sound yeah. effect here this week. <laughs> yeah, no, it was part of a, a, an upcoming story on the, the Red Bull race season that's that's nearly upon us. And uh, Matt actually did a week of media, which I tip my hat to him for because he spent a whole week of, of smiling and answering probably the same questions and taking people for, for flights in the Giles. And he was a thorough professional in doing doing that, which obviously reflects in the way he flies an aeroplane too. So oh, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to go up to Maitland and spend some time with Matt and, and do an interview. And he took me up for a, a quick ride in the Giles. And um, yeah, I can't wish him enough luck this coming season. I sort of thought in many ways, the fact that he was out at Maitland Airstrip doing the hard yards typified the, the approach that operating such a, a sport from an Australian base, it, it told the story in so many ways, because you're up against these European teams that I can imagine have fairly generous sponsorship and money. And, and here he is, he's, he's just doing, ticking all the boxes through professionalism and, and hard work. And I think everyone's just got to get behind this guy. I oh, think yeah. um, the fact that he came third in his rookie year, he's got the correct headspace and obviously the ability. He really should be held up as one of Australia's great sportsmen, I think. And hopefully this season, the folks back home will get right behind him. I think you can tell with him. And like the, we met him back in, uh, I guess it was November last year. And, you know, he's, he speaks really well and, and he's, he comes across as really easygoing. And I'm sure he is. But you can also see when you're chatting with him, you can see the intensity, you know, um, in, in the way he well, thinks well, you about have, everything. You have to have that. I've had a bit of dealing with elite sportsmen over the years through through other interests I've had. And that that's almost a com- common thread amongst them you have to have that intensity because so much of it is concentration and focus and, and blocking out the competition too to a degree yeah. that if you don't have that strength of will and character then you, you're just not going to make it notwithstanding i think a, a short anecdote that's quite interesting is the first time i met matt was actually down at the tomorrow aviation museum and i was there with my elderly mother who was a radar operator in world war ii oh cool and he became aware that mum was there through someone at the museum and he came over and started chatting to her as one ex-Raffy to another. And he was absolutely disarming to her. She was felt tremendous that this young pilot had come up and taken the time to speak to another ex-service woman. And that, to me, said as much about his integrity as any interview you'll see on a Red Bull race circuit. He um, took the time out for someone. He recognised where he came from and was an absolute gentleman. And then he, he got talking and there's actually a photo of from my father's gun camera in Korea on the wall there at Tamora and, and we got talking about that but absolutely genuine absolutely sincere and took the time out for an 87 year old woman who people had probably just walked past without saying two words to but he recognised the service she'd put in 50 years ago and took the time out to acknowledge that and for me that that spoke volumes and, and when I went up subsequently to, to speak with Matt at Maitland I already had a fair idea that he was a genuine sort of guy and, and yeah. I, as I said we, we've got to get behind him and Yeah, well, we certainly do that here. Now, you said he took you up in the Giles. How was that? Yeah, that was good. I I must admit, I haven't been involved in aerobatics probably for you're starting to talk into decades but um, it was the rate of roll was the thing that caught me totally well totally disarmed me it just was amazing it just round and round and round with a, a very high rate of roll and, and the stick input to achieve that seemed absolutely minimal the, these aircraft are built with bordering on neutral stability to instability so that yeah. they do respond in that fashion but it, it was um, you could just tell he was just so at ease in everything he did and so smooth and so craftsmanlike uh, from the takeoff right back to the touchdown and then hop out deal with the media and get up and do it again so <laughs> it, it it was a real experience it was 
fantastic for me. I'd like to um, do something. It, it's got the, the bug for me to get back into some aerobatics, I must admit. Which oh, is, good. Yeah, which is just uh, a time constraint at the moment. Yes. But um, it, it was a, a, a tremendous experience and, and capped it off a, a wonderful day that I spent at Maitland. But no, an absolute professional in every aspect. And I think that if there's any major sponsors out there, they'd, they'd go a long way to find someone better than Matt Bulls Racing <laughs> to sponsor and get some exposure in this country, I must admit. Uh, we've, we've really enjoyed having him on the show and it's been a major coup for us to have him on as many times as we have. So definitely want to give him all the support we can and uh, get everyone behind him. It's uh, yeah. it's great to see what he's doing. Of course, as he says, he's he's like, why did I come third on my first year? Now I can only come second or first. You know? yeah, <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, yeah. oh, so you didn't do anything, did you? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, in all those sports, when you have a, a big first year, the competition sort of sits back and takes a bit of notice too. You can sneak up on him that first year. So he's got his game face on. He won't leave anything to chance that he um, can have some input and control over, I'm sure of that. And just before we finish up, Owen, uh, of course, the, the big topic uh, in terms of airspace management, I, I guess, around Australia and, and even around the world lately has been ADSB. Now, uh, you wrote an article a year or so back about ADSB, which you won an award for, you told us, which was good. So uh, yeah. now that it's up and running, uh, at least over part of the country here, um, have you heard much much feedback about how it's going? Well, the, the fact about ADSB is that it, it allows to a degree, reduce separation standards as if it's almost in a radar environment when you can be at the remote corners of Australia. Air traffic controllers have a presentation that gives them a data tag that tells them your level and um, your registration, etc., as, as you would in a fully radar environment, except that information, rather than being bounced back from an airframe, is being transmitted from the aircraft. As, as a pilot, it's a very passive system. You only really know it by looking down in the um, flight plan summary of your flight plan that tells you in the same way that it tell you you've got two VHF radios, VOR as such on board, it will have ADS-B. So it's, it's a fairly passive piece of equipment as a pilot. You don't have to switch it on. You don't have to really know. It's just interlinked with your um, transponder. But what it does do is rather than having to make position reports as you cross the Nullarbor, etc., you are effectively on what would have been perceived as a radar screen mm. in the old days the whole way across so you are just handed over to the, the various control frequencies without having to nominate your position in your next estimate because they can get that information because it's being transmitted back to to them in their various offices around Australia so, and so long as the uh, all the satellites are lined up and all that it's a heck of a lot more accurate than your estimate probably was anyhow yeah for sure because <laughs> you, you can get wind shifts and that and you have to then work out your ground speed and see um, mm -hmm. revise your estimate which in an FMC equipped aircraft obviously is generated in front of you you just have to pay the attention to say gee I was estimating there at 47 minutes past the hour now I'm estimating there at 45 yep. to let air traffic control know well obviously if that is up to date being transmitted that data via satellite back to the controller he's updated straight away there's, there's yep. no guesswork to it and that is what in turn leads to the reduced separation standards over what would be applied to non-ADSB aircraft in an uncontrolled effectively environment now that's ADSB out the other other one is ADSBN, where your aircraft is listening to everyone else around you and paints you on the um, on the traffic paints all the traffic up on your screen. Have you had much experience with that? Yeah, no, we're, we're pretty much in our environment. We've got our TKs equipped aircraft, obviously, but the um, I, I believe in the lower airspace, that's where they're really looking to use that that equipment 
for people going into regional ports and that. And as yet, that hasn't really taken off to the best of my knowledge. I must admit, as I said, it's been a while since I wrote the article. But ultimately, yes, they will have a a screen going into a a regional port and they will be able to uh, plot where not just TCAS equipped aircraft as such, it it will give a presentation of the the closing ground speed, where the aircraft is relative to them. And it'll assist in the self-separation rather than just asking what's your DME, what time are you expecting to be over? head gunnadar you will be able to see this person with a rate of close on a screen but yep. uh, that that is ultimately where it'll go i think yeah anything that helps situational awareness has to be a good thing absolutely as long as it's all presented in a, a logical manner yeah. and in an easily legible manner otherwise you start to get distraction coming into play and, and overload to a degree but if it can be integrated in a worthwhile fashion it, it'd be a great aid we only yeah. have to look in terms of the difference tcas has been in terms of awareness I, I yep. have often thought when, when you're plying the airways, you see this blip go past with a 1,000 foot or 2,000 foot above you and you think, if you're sitting in cloud in the old days, you never even knew they were there if they weren't given to you as crossing traffic or, or genuine IFR traffic. Whereas now you have a heightened awareness of, well, here comes a chap nose to nose a 1,000 foot above and you, you can't help but look out the window and keep an eye out for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I know even in the simulators when I've been flying around in sims and, uh, you know, we've got the TCAS on and all that kind of stuff and you can't help it. You're looking out and you're going, oh, look, there's a computer-generated pixel. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. But no, it, it, it's fantastic gear and I think and Australia's pretty much a, a leader in ADS-B. It, um, and, and in the upper airspace, it's it's really advanced. It's just a case now of getting it fully fledged down in the, the lower realms as well. That's that's going to be the next step because the, the transponders and equipment in the light aircraft world will will have to be upgraded and i think that was one of the stalling points is yes. who was going to to fund the upgrading of that equipment for that to exist yeah that's right it's uh, a lot of people going around going well hell you know that's that's thousands of dollars i've got to put into my aircraft i don't want to do that mm. yeah that's so you, you get into a whole new debate so the upper airspace i think is pretty well under control and managed now but that idea adsb in that you were talking about and having the plots that will be of such assistance in regional airports that's going to be a whole different ball game because they're going to have a whole lot of general aviation aircraft that have to have their equipment modified the ga aircraft um, you know if they're getting adsb out well you know what's in it for them but if they've got adsb in coming in on a little screen yeah giving yep. them the the, the equivalent of TCAS or that, suddenly you've got a benefit there that most pilots would go, ooh, I'd take that, especially if there's government subsidies to get it into the planes. Yeah, well, that gets to the core issue, who's going to pay for it? And I think that was um, one of the, the points that was debated when I wrote the article, I think, in 2006. Well, this is Australia. We'll all end up paying for it like everything else. <laughs> <laughs> No comment. <laughs> Our friends across in the US are uh, be watching with interest, no doubt, with uh, ADSB, you know, as to see how it's it's running here because they're getting it up and running over there. And and not only that, they've they've shut down the Loran system recently, which yeah, yeah I saw is that. Crazy, yep. I reckon. But anyway, that's that's their choice or well, their government's choice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and a part of ADSB and, and and satellite navigation is is some of the trials going on here in Melbourne, and they've had it in Queenstown for a while, which is the the whole RNP. Are you able to chat to us about that? Yeah, um, RNP. Rec- Required nav performance. It, it's actually well in place in various ports across Australia. There's approaches and departures in and out of Brisbane. You've got it used in Adelaide. 
they're currently being integrated into um, Melbourne and the approach procedures are approved there. As you said, Queenstown is well known for its um, RNP procedures there. So it, it is definitely the way of the future in terms of navigation systems and approaches that it allows you to go into places like Ayers Rock, which once was serviced by a, a single NDB or yeah. beacon. And you can go in there and with much lower minimas, much more precision navigation with an approach that is aligned with the runway. Uh, it, I often like an RNP in many ways to an ILS could be seen as a, a reducing wedge aligned with a runway, whereas RNP can be a flexible hose that can wind yeah. down to the runway with turns relatively late in the approach. And by virtue of that, they can avoid noise sensitive areas, they can um, avoid terrain, etc., etc., and really be tailored to the port. And ultimately, I think you'll see that becomes almost the standard approach into to airports because once again it takes a lot of the um, reliance and therefore expense of the maintenance of ground-based aids. Yeah, that um, that'd be um, a, a big help in a place like Sydney where uh, noise abatement is always a huge issue with with people living around. Uh, yeah, Sydney. yeah. Like obviously uh, Sydney is, is always thought of in terms of noise. The the fact is that really off the the northern end you you've got built-up areas pretty much well across places like Cairns. You look at where they have small communities and that to the north of the airstrip and that you can basically thread the approach between those communities. So in terms of noise, and the minute you start to do that, you can also have, um, you don't have level segments in the approach so that you don't have to spool up and create noise and increase emissions. And then by virtue of the precision nature of the, the approach, you can have lower minimas. It does call for greater precision in that navigation, but it, it allows a, a lot greater chance of getting in with the lower minimas at some of these ports, therefore negating a certain percentage of, of missed approaches due weather, which once again, in, in this green world we live in, a missed approach equals noise, equals emissions. So there's a number of um, advantages to R&P. It's, it, it effectively gives you a precision approach to any runway you want, as without, I said, yeah. Yeah, without needing the, the a heck of a lot of radars and VORs and ground-based systems, and except, except if they go with a GBAS, the ground-based augmentation system, but that's, that's where you just have a, a single transmitter at the airport, which says gives out the correction signal, isn't it? Yeah, and, and where they do have uh, ground-based augmented systems too, that can actually assist in airports beyond just the airport where that, that is based. If you've got the ground-based augmented system emitting its its signals from um, Sydney, it can also take Bankstown into range, etc. So it's it's the next stage in navigation. There's no two ways about it. And um, Australia is, is a leader in it once again. Uh, there's um, a, a long way to go as such, but it is actually very well established in Australia already, which uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of. All right, cool. we probably ought to uh, think about wrapping it up there, Owen. It's uh, always fascinating to catch up with you, mate, and uh, we're sorry we left it so long, and uh, <laughs> we certainly hope that we can catch up with you again before you launch. Now, uh, May 5th, is that when you're heading off on the uh, there and back yeah. trip? Yeah, departing Bundaberg on May 5th and wending my way around in an anti-clockwise fashion. Okay, <laughs> folks, the uh, website, of course, of course, we hear Owen's ad uh, every week, but uh, just in case you've forgotten it, it's uh, thereandback.com.au. Owen's up. We hope we can talk to you again before May 5th. We'll have another fantastic conversation then. Thanks, guys. It's been great to chat. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Owen. Awesome, mate. Cheers. Flight 
experience, 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey. At PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. And welcome back, folks. Now, we're going to introduce to you a new segment in the show, which we've been working on for quite a few weeks, and we're quite excited about. Now, you've no doubt noticed that at the end of the show now, our end credits are professionally read. This has relieved Grant and I from the awesome responsibility of having to do it ourselves and uh, stuffing it up each week, which is something that we were doing very, very regularly. We were getting uh, worse and worse at it each week. So who is the voice behind the end credits? Well, that voice, in fact, belongs to a work colleague of mine by the name of Anthony Simmons. Now, Anthony has done work in the past at the ABC here in Melbourne, and he's also had quite some experience in copywriting in the past. Uh, now, Anthony and I just happened by chance to be chatting about the uh, broadcasting and podcasting game one day, something that I love to bore everybody to tears with talking about these days. And uh, Anthony came up with the idea of reading out the end credits and uh, having that professionally done and offered to do it, which uh, we really do appreciate. And uh, from that, um, Anthony's gone back and uh, has become quite interested in the idea of podcasting and is, uh, has been very keen to uh, produce this segment. So um, the idea behind this segment is the view of the aviation industry from the customer's standpoint, not so much from the enthusiasts or the pilot's standpoint. So uh, folks, we'd like to introduce to you the view from the lounge. I hope you enjoy it. Airline travel is no longer glamorous, nor is it the domain of the well-heeled jet set. The rise of no-frills, low-cost carriers has seen people flocking to airlines that have never flown before and forced the hand of full-service providers to adjust the service part to remain competitive. And with many companies having both full-service and low-cost alternatives, just how much jet starization is actually going on and does it really affect the humble pedestrian traveller? Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons and this is The View from the Lounge. I'll be the first to admit the extent of my knowledge of the aviation game begins and ends with if I press the little button on the armrest, the nice lady with the trolley brings me another Bloody Mary. As an infrequent flyer, I thought I'd find out what Steve and Grant have been hammering on about. I recently flew to Canberra with a friend to see an exhibition at the National Gallery of Australia, so with overnight bag in hand and Skippy Airlines e-ticket to the ready, we sallied forth to Tullamarine, Melbourne's major international and domestic terminal. Fortunately for me, my travelling companion was a member of the Qantas Club, and I'd been up since 3am, so I was looking forward to a cold libation or two on the house 
prior to the one-hour flight to our wide and sunburnt land's capital. The self-service check-in terminals were simple enough for even this cloth-headed idiot to operate, but the touch screens should have been renamed Tap with Small Ball-Peen Hammer Screens. The random seat allocation lottery awarded us with overwing exit seats, so we did not receive boarding passes, but a pseudo-boarding pass directing us to a staff member who inquired, were we quite happy to manhandle the 20-kilogram exit door and chuck it into the wide blue if the need so arose? To which we cheerfully replied, no problem, and real boarding passes were issued. It was at this time that I noticed, if you wanted to check luggage in, the process seemed to be self-service terminal for boarding pass, then queue to check your bags, which seems a somewhat inefficient way, rather than just deal with a human being straight up. In the club, we were informed that the bar opens at 2pm. Naturally, and of course, our flight boarded at 5 minutes to 2 Being a short flight and understanding that full-service carriers need to trim costs, I wasn't expecting a three-course gourmet slap-up, but I did anticipate something a bit more substantial than a 75-gram apricot streusel, which wasn't streusel by my definition anyway, and being slugged $6 for 330 millilitres of James Squire Gold Nail. The return flight was after 4pm, so the beer was complimentary and the 11 peanuts, and yes, I did count them, were inedible. The Qantas website states that I can enjoy warm bakery items or blended juices for breakfast, snack on cupcakes or warm scrolls in between mealtimes, or enjoy a hot dinner on your way home. Complimentary beer and wine is served from 4pm on City Flyer flights on weekdays, and afternoon on Perth services every day, along with a selection of complimentary non-alcoholic beverages available on all flights. For the life of me, I cannot fathom why the departure time, day or location would have any bearing on the meal I'm offered or the fiscal status of my beverage of choice. Complimentary or no, it's a one-hour flight, so there isn't going to be any Rod Marsh, David Boone antics. Free after 4pm and no bar before 2 strikes me as rather parsimonious. A free snack and pay for your beer or free ale and not very many nuts doesn't seem to be full service to the infrequent flyer in seat 22E. Checking in for the return journey, the first self-service terminal had a severe case of haptophobia, a fear of being touched, as did the second. The third was more responsive, and off to the Canberra Qantas Club, where the bar, mercifully, was open. So it comes to this. You get what you pay for, and the actual fare was less than a day's wage for me. The low-cost alternatives, Virgin and Jetstar, were basically asking the same amount. And if I'd flown with another carrier, I would have had to pay for any food or drink. But if you market yourself as a full-service airline, surely you can stump up a beer and a cheese and pickle sandwich, whether I'm flying at 14.15 or 17.10. Open the club bar at times for all, not just for the corporate warriors, and make sure that self-service means we can serve ourselves. At least the bar in the infrequent Flyers Club is always open. And that's the view from the lounge. Hmm, nice drop, that. (laughs) 
So there you go, Grant. What did you think of that? Oh, uh, mate, that's gold. I love it. It's some very good points he raises, uh, and also the the method of delivery is great. I'm really glad that we've got a, a segment happening for us now on an occasional basis that is is pretty much targeted at those who aren't necessarily airplane geeks or um, airplane enthusiasts and professionals. We've got people out there, believe it or not, who don't love aircraft. They fly a bit. They uh, they get around. They actually listen to us just to enjoy hearing a little bit more about what's happening in the commercial airline world and in aviation in general as a, as a uh, general knowledge thing. It's, they're not necessarily crazy on planes. And so we think this segment's going to be a bit of a hit with them. Yeah, the way we came up with the idea for this segment was, uh, Anthony, basically, we got to talking about flying and the, the line he used is there at the start of his segment where he's saying that basically the only thing he knows about uh, aircraft is, is is that if he presses this button that the stewardess will come and bring him some more to drink. I, I just I thought that was hilarious and, and it just sort of went off from there. So, folks, Anthony is desperate for some feedback. He's uh, very nervous about how this might be received. So what we're going to do, folks, is, uh, well, of course, as always, we'd encourage you to uh, send us some feedback via our email address, which is under at gmail. But we're also going to start a thread on the forums called The View from the Lounge. So uh, Anthony is going to be monitoring that and um, just looking for some feedback on uh, what you folks think of it. I thought it was hilarious. And uh, he's already produced a second one, which we'll play in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, he's got some really interesting ideas for um, where he'd like to take the segment. So it's just something that we're going to drop in every now and again, just for a bit of uh, light relief. And uh, yeah, excellent stuff. Fantastically produced. He did that uh, production all on his own with my expert tutelage. <coughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What a difference eight months makes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we'll have another view from the lounge in another couple of episodes from now. I'm looking forward to getting some more great content from Anthony as uh, as time progresses. But meanwhile, as we mentioned at the intro, uh, we had one of our listeners down here in Melbourne, David Optimal, you may know him as, who's a recently graduated grade three instructor from uh, Sydney. He flies out of Bankstown. And he was coming down here to Melbourne to have a look around at various airports. And he and I teamed up and went driving around while he was uh, plugging himself. I was shamelessly plugging the podcast and uh, handing out flyers for people to put up on notice boards. So here's the interview we recorded with David sitting in Steve's PCDU mobile after lunch. Hey, this is Grant and I'm sitting here with uh, Steve and our guest David Optimal. We're sitting in the PCDU mobile enjoying the cool air conditioning on a very warm day here in Cranbourne and David's flowing down here to Melbourne to meet with us. Oh, sorry, no. He's come down here to uh, tour the Melbourne airports and meet with all the CFIs that he can and put his uh, resume out because he's now a grade three instructor uh, it's not just to meet with us but uh, he seems to be kind of impressed that he's meeting the voices in his head and that's really scary hey david how you going how you going guys yeah not too foul how about you steve yeah we're going well we just had a nice lunch and we made david pay for it no we didn't do did we <laughs> we tried yeah <laughs> he pulled that i'm a poor broke instructor student type thing yeah. <sighs> I don't know, these guests. Yeah. Flying is too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so, David, uh, now you're from Spain originally, is that right? From yes, Buffalo? I'm half Spanish and half Swiss. So, uh, how did you uh, end up down here in the uh, the great southern land? I don't know, I was thinking of going somewhere different and thought maybe United States. And then I decided Australia is more special, <laughs> exciting. And Boy, we had, were you wrong. <laughs> oh, sorry. And we had better po- we have better podcasters down here. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> I thought, it didn't mean it, guys. Didn't mean it. <laughs> but I thought, what's the furthest away I can get from home? Yeah, pretty hard and to get further than here. Today, with the internet, I'm right there and yeah. here at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's a much smaller world than it was, you know, even 10 years ago. Indeed. David, you've been um, planning to fly up in uh, in Bankstown area, haven't you? Yep, I started in Bankstown and did first lesson in effects and controls exactly two years ago. And I became a flight instructor two weeks ago. 
exactly two years and one day after my first lesson. Cool. So, David, how many in that two years you've done more than just get your ab initio and then instructor? What else have you done? Well, I've got my CPL and my multi-engine command instrument rating and instructor rating with about 275 hours. So, 275 hours, and you can grab a, a twin and fly instrument on a commercial rate and instruct people. Exactly. Not bad. Excellent. Well, that's good, mate. Well, listen, we need to get a flight across to uh, Geelong, don't we, later on in the day? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we need to get across to Perth, but that's a whole different story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, which which places were you learning to fly with? Well, yeah. I learned to fly at Bassar in Bankstown. Yeah, I did um, up to CPL and instrument rating over there. And then I went over to Schofields to do my instructor rating. There's a lot of schools in Bankstown, aren't there? Yeah, I think there's about at least eight schools. So, did you see more schools here in Moorabbin? You seem to be reasonably impressed with the number of schools we went into while we were tripping yeah. around. Yeah, well, I don't know if there are more schools per airport, but I'm sure you have more airports here. Oh, you guys have at least 10 airports down here. Yeah, there's lots of, from little strips to the main ones. Uh, yesterday we went and did a road trip out to Essendon Airport and said hi to some people out there and then round to Lilydale. Today it's been Moorabbin and we're about to go to Turidan and Tyab. And then tomorrow I've got to go to the office, but you're going out to Bacchus Marsh. Going out Bacchus Marsh, um, Geelong and Ballarat. Ballarat. Pretty big one. And uh, you got some pointers today about uh, having a chat with some people up at Mangalore. Mangalore, that's right. Hasn't been a total waste of a journey, has it? No, I hope not. So yeah. we've got to ask you this, David. Uh, which airline did you fly down here on? wasn't Tiger Airways, was it? No, mate. I flew Jetstar and was very happy with them, Yep, as usual. You flew into Tuller or into Avalon? Into Avalon. That's right. You took a video of the landing, didn't you? As usual, all my flights go into YouTube. <laughs> and by the way, youtube.com slash davidoptimal. I was about to ask you about that. So where can we find you on the net, mate? My name is David Roses, but uh, you might uh, know me better as David Optimal from Twitter. And my blog is at davidoptimal.com. And that's an excellent website too. David's a bit of a photographer, he was telling us, and you've got some really great shots there. One of the shots I like on your website is it's taken it, you're obviously flying a twin of some description, I'm not sure what, but it's a sort of a shot out over the engine cowling somewhere over Sydney, which is one of my favourites. I always thought of taking that and using it as my desktop background. but I think that photo was over Richmond yeah, Okay. Yeah. on the ILS approach. Yeah. My desktop is the Singapore A380 that I took uh, the photo of in Singapore when I first came down to Australia in the A380. Good way to start an aviation career. <laughs> yeah, you were one of the first people to fly the Singapore A380 commercially down to Australia. Yep, that was cool. on the 3rd of January 2008. It was about two months after they started. So David, you've been living down here for two years, you said, and you've done all your flying training here. What are your plans for the future? Do you think you'll sort of head back to Europe and pursue your career there, or you're not sure at the moment? I'm happy here. I'm expecting to live here for a few years as an instructor, eventually get into an airline. I just have to sort out my visa problems and hopefully become an Australian permanent resident or even citizen, who knows. Well, if they'd let me in, they'll let anyone in. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, so you want to fly with an airline or a yes, corporate? Yes, and after I get into an airline. David was having a wee bout of aeroneuropycosis the other day because, lo and behold, there was a Falcon 7X parked out the oh, executive wow. area in Essendon. Yeah. Right next to a Gulfstream 6 600. Mm-hmm. Oh, those yeah, things are amazing. Well, you can't blame me for that, Grant. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mind you, I was going gaga over the uh, Fokker Friendship, the F 27. Oh, that, yeah. uh, the Super F 27 that was there for maritime uh, research. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's still going there again. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was back again. Yeah. Anything else you want to say? Well, I love spending time in the air. 
and whenever I'm not playing, I'm listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. especially Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's oh. only aviation podcast, and therefore the best. Okay, Steve, you said it now. You can take the gun from his head, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Excellent. David, it was uh, great to meet you, and uh, we've had a nice lunch, and it was a shame I've got to head off to work now because I'd love to be uh, cruising around all the airports for the rest of the afternoon with you guys. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming down, and thanks for having a chat with us. And thank you very much. So nice meeting you guys. No worries. Thanks, mate. This Week in Aviation History, Australia Edition, with David Vanderhoof. Dateline, February 18th, 2010. My brothers and sisters, we are gathered here today in this tabernacle of flight, this quest to protect us from the great Satan, Tiger Airways. Can I get an hallelujah? Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Now, let's open our texts to Joshua 6, verses 1 through 27, the Battle of Jericho. And the walls came a-tumbling down. Can I get an amen? Amen! So, what does this have to do with historical aviation in the Pacific Rim? Good question, you asked. Well, it has everything to do with Operation Jericho, a World War II operation flown by Royal Australian and Royal New Zealand air crews. By 1943, a large portion of the French resistance was held up in a prison in Armens, France. The Gestapo prison was a huge concern to the Allies due to the several of the captured resistance fighters were holding information relevant to the upcoming D-Day invasion. The RAF's 2nd Tactical Air Force were charged with rescuing the prisoners who were ordered to be executed on 19 February 1944. Notice, guys, that I put that in proper Aussie order. I'm learning. The mission was headed up by Group Captain Percy Picard. Engage. The 140 wing was made up of 464 Royal Australian Air Force Squadron, 467 Squadron Royal New Zealand Air Force, and lastly, 21 Squadron Royal Air Force. The wing had 18 Mosquito Fighter Bomber FB-6s. This was the gun known's version of the Mossy. A total of 2,289 of this version came out of the de Havilland plant. It was actually one-third of the total production run of all Mosquitoes. The mission originally scheduled for February 10th was going to be a three-pronged attack. It was delayed for eight days until the 18th. The first wave would be RAF's 464 Squadron, the second would be 467 Squadron, and lastly, 21 Squadron would follow up. The 464 Squadron made the first attack equipped with 500-pound bombs with 11-second delay fuses to breach the three-foot-high walls. 18 aircraft took off and seven aborted due to mechanical and weather reasons. A support squadron of Royal Air Force Typhoons also aborted due to weather. 464 made the first attack with two aircraft doing a diversion attack at the local railway station, which provided a two-hour delay for German reinforcements. They took out the guardhouse where at the 1201 attack, um, most of the uh, Gestapo guards were having lunch. They also took out the outside wall. At 1206, the 467 aircraft arrived early, forcing them to circle to determine the damage done by the 464 squadron. The 467 then attacked in two waves. First, two aircraft flew in at 50 feet 
or 15.24 meters, dropped the bombs to take out the outside wall. It was followed by a second second pair of aircraft at 100 feet, or 30.48 meters. Group Captain Picard orbited the prison in order to make the determination if the 21 Squadron needed to make a third attack. 21 Squadron's mission was to level the prison if the other two were not successful and the escapes did not occur. Luckily, Picard called off 21 Squadron and they returned home. Picard, unfortunately, though, was not so lucky. On the return home, he was jumped by a Focke-Wulf 190 of uh, JG-26, who shot off his tail, and he and his radio man crashed and were fatally wounded. The results of the attack on the arms prison, 87 dead, mostly German Gestapo, 25 had escaped, and 122 were later recaptured. The RAF, RAAF, and RNZNAF losses were three aircrew and three captured, with a total of three mosquitoes and two typhoons lost. Overall, it was a heroic mission of truly biblical proportions. Now, brothers and sisters, go to your airplanes and go in peace. If you're interested more about the wooden wonder or the mosquito, go to www.mossy.org. Well, gentlemen, my homework's done. I hope you enjoyed the history. I'm sorry for the delay. It's not been a good January and February up here, but we're getting through it. Well, enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. This is David Vanderhoof, the Airplane Geeks and Plane Crazy Down Under Historians, signing off. And thank you very much, Brother David. <laughs> Grant, another fantastic history report there. Uh, Charles Picard, an interesting character there. Just having a look here on the internet, mate. He was a group captain during that raid. That was the oh, that was the rank that he achieved uh, before he died. He was only 29 when he died. Yeah, no, that's the thing about the war. It took out a lot of people very young, and uh, a lot of people at very young ages had serious responsibility. They were um, people were elevated through the ranks quite quickly during wartime scenarios. Yeah. And he also picked up a number of commendations during his uh, his short career. Uh, interestingly enough, he actually failed uh, to uh, gain a commission in the British Army uh, and was commissioned in 1937 in the Royal Air Force. So a bit of a loss for the Army there. They could have had a, a fine officer, but instead uh, he uh, rose uh, through the ranks with distinction in the Royal Air Force. And... Uh, Amongst other things, it says here he's got a DSO and a DFC, which I think, Grant, is the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's correct. Excellent stuff. And, of course, the Mosquito Bomber, a uh, twin-engine bomber, quite a unique aircraft. Absolutely beautiful aircraft, the Wooden Wonder. It was wood, laminated, uh, held together with glue, which caused a lot of problems when they tried to use them down here in a tropical environment. All the uh, glue unbonded and they fell apart. But uh, absolutely incredible aircraft in its element and uh, very high speed, a couple of Merlin. The, uh, one problem that an ex-mosquito pilot uh, related to me many years ago was that the, the, his biggest worry were those propellers uh, because the arc of the propellers, the disc, was uh, right in line with your, pretty much your knees. So if anything went wrong and a propeller sheared off, the odds are it was going to go right through your legs. Mm, and they are huge propellers on those aircraft too. Yeah, oh, it was Absolutely beautiful. It's always been one of my uh, favorite aircraft of World War II era. And um, there's a, a movie called 633 Squadron that, in addition to some great music by Ron Goodman, who did the uh, music for the Battle of Britain, you've got some incredible views of uh, mosquitoes operating at extremely low level. 
it's a, it's a great movie, that one. Excellent stuff, folks. We do apologise for the scratchy sound quality uh, that came through in the history report there from David. That's a problem at our end that we had with Skype while we were recording. And we'll endeavour to uh, work on getting a better link through there to Philadelphia in the future. You can uh, catch David on the Airplane Geek Show. He's the historian in residence there, of course. And you can also catch him on his fantastic blog, which is at www.whatjustflewby.com. And we look forward to catching up with another history report from David in a couple of episodes from now. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back. Well, heck, we've been asked to say something good about the podcast down under. Does anybody have anything? No, let's talk about our own podcast instead. You mean the Airplane Geeks? The Airplane Geeks podcast. You mean the, us? The people that taught the people down under how to do it. You mean the people who speak normally? That's right. And where can people find the Airplane Geeks podcast? Airplane that would be www.airplanegeeks.com. Com. And we know how to take care of our friends. We don't let people train us and then just kind of try to one-up them with a better podcast. We don't That's do right. that. No. We're staying at our mediocre level That's where right. we belong. We know our place in the world. <laughs> Long live mediocrity. That's right. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. That is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. You're listening to Playing Crazy. This is Nigel Lamb for, uh, all the way out from uh, England, uh, enjoying uh, New South Wales and looking forward to seeing you all in uh, Perth in April 2010. Welcome back, folks. Uh, the next piece we're going to play for you, our final segment for today's show, is a discussion that we had with Baz Sheffers, our friend who flies RAOZ aircraft out of Parafield in Adelaide, and his friend John, who was a member of the Aerocene Flying Group that they've got going over there in Parafield. And a whole bunch of the Aerocene crew, plus some others, decided to do a flyabout and go visit a remote location as a great excuse to clock up some hours, get together, have a bit of social fun, and come home. This was recorded a while ago. It has been sitting in the queue as Steve alluded to in the uh, start of the episode. Mostly that's been my cue. Uh, Steve has been pretty busy doing his magic on various episodes and so I said that I'd do it and was going to do it over the Christmas New Year break but typical me found so many other exciting things to do like (laughs) sleep, read and drink beer. So finally here it is. Uh, Steve I'm sorry it took me so long. Baz, John, please forgive me. Mia culpa. Are you gonna? Are you guys still gonna be my friends, guys? Gee, that's the most long-winded apology slash introduction we've ever done on the show, Grant. Well, it is the lo- it is the second longest it's ever been since I recorded and haven't done anything. We all know what the longest one is, and it's getting longer. And it starts with dawn, <laughs> ends with patrol. I wasn't gonna bring that up, mate. Folks, uh, let's enjoy this interview, and we'll talk to you on the other side of it. The Recreational Aviation Report with Baz Sheffers. 
Well, Baz, you've brought along a friend this week. Would you like to introduce our guest? I have. It's uh, John Squires. And uh, like me, he flies from Parafield. Of course, that's where we met. He used to own a glass air. Interesting stories about that. And he's also a part owner in a uh, Yek 52. Just uh, been flying for how long have you been flying for, John? Uh, I think this is 22 years. Woot. Nice. Well, welcome to the show, John. It's uh, good to have you with us and um, interesting to hear about your uh, recent trip away with uh, with the flying group. Well, thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. You know, it's always good to get uh, more people on and have more conversations and get more points of view and all that. And yeah, it's always great. We love it. So, well, yeah. I'm certainly somebody who'll give you my opinion, so... Oh, cool. You're one of us. Well, then, uh, yes, you'll fit, you'll fit right in here, mate. <laughs> I can vouch for that. He, uh, he does. But it's usually, it's usually a very interesting opinion. Well, as our, ta- yeah. as our disclaimer says, we're just opinionated enthusiasts. <laughs> yes, well, whether you need the opinion or not, you probably get it. So, Well, good. <laughs> awesome. All right. So, uh, Baz, do you want to lead off and uh, tell us about uh, all your, your exploits with the recreational aviation uh, scene since we spoke to you last? It's been a few episodes since we uh, spoke to you last. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. I've been uh, been rather busy uh, flying, working, moving house. Uh, but one of the main things we did uh, with Aerocene a few weeks ago was uh, our first weekend away trip, which was a, a big success. We had, uh, in the end, we had 25 people in about 10 planes. And we all we came from various locations. Uh, most of us from uh, from Parafield, and uh, went over to the Grampians. If you don't know the Grampians, uh, of course, uh, in Victoria, a bit about halfway between uh, Adelaide and, uh, and Melbourne. But there's a, a a little resort there called the Ass's Ears. Uh, <laughs> before you hit the uh, the bleep button, the ass we're talking about here is a is a donkey, which is basically a 1,200 meter grass runway uh, with eight cabins right next to it. And so you can understand the appeal when we uh, found out about that. Actually, when I when I first spoke to John about this thing existing, he started making calls because he wanted to go that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, being eager, mate. you don't often find places that are specifically tailored for pilots. Yeah, that's a rarity in this country. You, you do see a fair bit of that over in the in the United States, but it's it's certainly something. I was actually, you know, I live in Victoria. I didn't even know this place existed. So they're they're not nearly as common here in Australia. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's strange because he uh, he like likes having flying groups come there, but he doesn't ever advertise in any of the the, the magazines or the AOPA guide. Like some of the other uh, uh, ones do, like the the Camel Station. We'll have to look up where that was again. He runs a runs a nice place. He charges decent prices. You know, you get you pay for it, and you, you don't pay that much, and it's good. There's a all you need so it's a roof over your head and a comfy bed and uh, and some good food, and the food was pretty good. So everyone was uh, was quite pleased with that. It's uh, it's not. I think the most people paid about twenty two bucks for the night in the shared accommodation. So. Can't complain about that. Oh, that's excellent. Not bad. And uh, was it, how was his booking shape? Was it uh, hard to get a booking there, or could you just sort of book really uh, anytime? No, it wasn't. He uh, he's very uh, accommodating, especially because we booked quite far in advance. So basically, we had the place to ourselves. He says on Saturday night they usually have a, a group of uh, a bus of backpackers showing up that take one of the uh, the dorms. The group did show up, except this time they all brought their tents, so they didn't even use any of the cabins there. So yeah, had the place to ourselves. And uh, how did you go coming across in the Sports Star? Was uh, was it a? Uh, did you have to stop somewhere along the way for fuel, or I guess yeah, you I did. I probably with the winds that were there, I could have made it. Although we we took a, a slightly different route. We were gonna first all meet up at Hamilton for lunch. The Hamilton Aero Club there uh, just cooked us a 
just a nice lunch. So we all got there around noon, 12.30 Victorian time and just sat around for a bit. Had a bit of relax in the nice uh, air-conditioned uh, club rooms they've got there. Had a meal and uh, all fueled up and uh, then went on to the... Uh, the Grampians, but uh, Hamilton was a bit at the end of my the range of uh, the sporty as well, so just to be safe and also so I could just fly a bit faster and burn a bit more fuel, but get there a bit quicker, I decided to just uh, pop into uh, to Narrow Court where the uh, the club members were there and they've got a, an FGAS Bowser which they operate for you, and so just pay cash, easy, and uh, had a nice cold drink there, also a nice air-conditioned club room, so it was, uh, it was nice and cool. And then uh, on our way to uh, Hamilton, where we pretty much arrived uh, when everyone else did, uh, so it was good and uh, it was an enjoyable flight despite the uh, the heat. It was uh, it was one of the warmest days uh, so far during the during the year. Yeah, Adelaide had been going through forty degree temperatures in November, which is pretty unusual. You, you normally have thirties, but not forties, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was uh, it was only a little bit cooler that weekend. I think by the time we took off from Narrow Court, it was uh, probably about thirty six degrees, and uh, you could really tell that that the sporty behaved uh, no not so sporty. <laughs> 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 I, and, uh, I'd, I'd found out uh, when I uh, when I left Narrow Court, I just did my quite my usual takeoff, which in which case you if you got a long runway, just use no flap at all, and a uh, little bit of bit of back pressure once you hit forty five knots, which I did, and the sporty rotated and just sat on the runway, <laughs> which is which is not what I'm used to. Yeah, hot, hot day. Uh, we were at Max Gross, and uh, so I decided uh, maybe I'll lower that nose just a little bit and wait for a bit more speed. Yeah, when we got off the ground, I, I managed to get a, a measly 600 feet a minute out of it, which, you know, for a Cessna would be fast, but for a sports star. They cruise faster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you had to do your uh, soft field takeoff, you know, get it into ground effect and build up speed, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, at, at Hamilton, I decided to... Uh, Try something different. Put put one one stage of flap in 15 degrees and forcibly hold it down a little bit longer until it really wanted to fly, and then it was a much less uh, eventful takeoff. Yeah, that made it made a good difference, huh? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, you, that's a that's a fun thing about flying. I'm a I'm a low hour pilot, and you 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 just learn these things about just flying in general and in, in your aircraft uh, specifically. Just every time you go flying, and that's you know, that's what what keeps it interesting. Always something new. And how about you, John? Uh, what, what aircraft was it that you fly again? Well, I'd, I would normally take the Yak on a flight like that, and the plan was to do that. But uh, as you know, or you may know, uh, Yak 52 doesn't exactly have spectacular range. Um, our particular aircraft actually has external tanks that were built by the Goards at um, Cowra. So when they imported the aircraft, they also built us a couple of bolt-on 60-litre um, tanks. So we can actually get oh. three hours out of our aeroplane. Um, That's handy. Oh, very handy, unless you want to do aerobatics in it, then you've got to unbolt the things. But mm-hmm. uh, um, So the plan was to take the Yak, but as it turns out, uh, too many people wanted to go, so I found myself flying a 172, which I haven't done for a long time. A there was a plan beforehand to possibly buy one, but after that weekend, I've decided to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> a bit too low performance, <laughs> eh? Oh, it's just... Uh, I, I guess the problem is when you're used to flying aircraft like the Yak, 
and even the glass air they, they just don't stack up in in terms of interest to fly their their trucks really yeah they're they like to fan um, their trucks don't they straight up cruise around and uh, down again yeah oh look the, f- for what they're built for they're perfect a four-seat airplane you know that well in, in my case i was carrying four because i had three women on board that wasn't a big problem but uh you know for what it for what it did it was it was good but i just i don't think i could own one frankly so you were flying the love machine yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as it turns out, we had uh, three 172s virtually in a convoy. Um, <laughs> we, we didn't intend that to happen, but that's basically what happened. And uh, I'm not sure how we managed to do it. I think it was just sheer luck that everyone seemed to arrive in the circuit area at Hamilton at the same time. So I think there were about six aircraft in the circuit at one stage, and, and that included everyone from Baz to a Baron. So uh, that was fairly interesting. But, yeah, it, it, was, it was an interesting flight, I must admit. Uh, the, the flight up there... We were in constant communication. We were using a chat channel to talk between the aircraft because most of the 172s have dual comms. So um, it was quite an interesting experience. Cool. Did you consider, well, have you ever considered a 182? Because I know speaking to a Nanchang pilot, you know, the CJ6, which is quite similar to the the Yak you're flying, apparently, I'm told. And uh, he was saying that it chews fuel and and everything about the same and does the same speed as a 182, except, of course, it's a two-seater, not a four. Mm. But the 182 will pack. You know, it's got more grunt. It'll it'll lift more, so you can actually have four adult males in there as opposed to uh, you know you and the ladies. I um I flew a virtually new one of those a couple of weeks ago, one with the full you know Garmin one thousand cockpit in it. Okay. Uh, and and they are really nice airplanes, but I I think my problem is I've been spoiled with the aircraft I've been flying, and it's it's just handling characteristics. They are yeah. very heavy airplanes to fly. Yeah. And uh, look, you know, same story. If 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 I was gonna if I had a family and I was doing a lot of flying. A 182 is probably the way to go, definitely. But uh, because I don't, um, I prefer to go with my hair on fire rather than comfortably. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough too. (laughs) But yeah, don't get me going on comparing a Nanchang to a Yak. There's not a lot of comparison, I don't think, but... No, we can save that for a. That's a discussion we'd love to have another day. Yeah, because no, one of the crew was saying, "Oh, that's the Nanchang, that's the Nanchang, and that's a Yak." Look, see, they're the same. And I was like, "Okay, uh, not unless you've flown both." Yeah, that was what I, I was wondering about it. The guy, the guy was talking about the Nanchang doing um, 130 knots, and I'm thinking, "Well, hang on, the maximum gear extension speed on the Yak." TW 52 TW is is 120 and the yellow arc starts at 200. Well, in terms of cruise, they're, they're not fast airplanes. The, the Yak, uh, to get a good economy cruise out of it, you'd cruise it at about 120. But, you, you know, you've got to compare apples with apples and really comparing an Anchang with a Yak, they are completely different airplanes designed for completely different purposes. One's a basic trainer that's designed with a bit more speed and a bit more range, and the Yak is designed to climb to altitude, rip your stomach out, and then come back down again. You know, Probably they are very different it. airplanes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the roll rates, the, the, virtually, they're, they're not really comparable in terms of their flying characteristics. They're very different. Very different airplanes. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for that clarification. And now moving back to the story. <laughs> <laughs> so how many aircraft did you have all together on this, on this uh, big tour? We had about 10 of them. Some of them stayed over, well, most of them stayed overnight. There was uh, there was one pair that uh, came in a from Victoria in a Texan, so they they only stayed uh, for the day. Everyone else uh, stayed overnight. I think we had about ten. So we had yeah, we had the sports star. The Texan showed up. We had a uh, what was it again, John? Uh, the Roman that was there. Oh, it's a um, it was a tiger or a um, a cheetah. One of those. Yeah, it was a cheetah. It was a cheetah. It was a, it was a cheetah. Yeah. yeah, we had the, the Baron, where some people. Uh, uh, six people showed up uh, in, in the in the Baron uh, 
air-conditioned, pressurized, comfort at uh, 200 and something knots. <laughs> I was um, slumming it. Yeah, I always say my plane is slower, which means I fly for longer and have more fun. <laughs> you clock more hours. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was a really good mix, and of course, like uh, John said, we had a, a bunch of uh, 172s, we had, a, we had a Piper Warrior, I believe. Uh, most of the people that were there were either uh, owners and, and private flyers like myself and, and John. Uh, we also had a bunch of students needed their hours. Of course, that's a great way to do it. Were you going to have an Aerostar at one point? Uh, yes, the Aerostar got substituted with the Baron. Oh, okay. Yeah. The chief pilot of the uh, Aerostar that was going to fly it had to uh, go to a wedding. Ah, yeah. So they managed to find the Baron as a replacement uh, for <laughs> a good price, and uh, but hopefully the Aerostar will uh, will join us at some other some other stage, and you know, people that don't want to fly real aircraft can uh, can go on that one. <laughs> My, I would suggest that people that don't want to fly should take the Aerostar, frankly, because I, I, I have real issues about those whole aeroplane things turning up to things. I mean, you know, you, why don't you just teleport yourself there because it's virtually the same thing. Yeah, maybe just get, you know, see if there's a scheduled flight on Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, come on, we're arriving in style. Hello. Yeah, that's true. You don't get the security. Yeah, i, I got to say, I could live with it, don't I? <laughs> Aerostars are nice birds. No, I reckon they'd be they'd be fantastic fun to fly. You know, if you're going somewhere long, it's you know, very technical and uh, that sort of thing. But as a you know, as a passenger, I'd probably as a as yeah, not in command, but interested in flying, <laughs> I'd probably have more fun than uh, you know, a 182 sitting next to uh, next to uh, the pilot yep. there. So once you guys all arrived and and landed at the uh, ass's ears, how you know, like well, lots of good tie down spots and all that kind of stuff? Uh, no, I just drove my pegs into the ground. Those who, those who did have tie-downs with them, which weren't a lot of people. I think we're all carrying them, Baz. It's just that, as it turns out, we didn't need to use them. Mm-hmm. No. I, I was better safe than sorry, so I put them in. But, you know, you, you've seen the, the, the tests of these tie-down products, and they're not yeah. all that good. If, it, if, it's a, if there's a good, good gust, and uh, they just come right out. Yeah, no, that was where, um, where Jeb Burnside was doing them. Um, yeah, exactly, you, yeah. Maybe where... My aircraft came with uh, a tie-down kit that's just one of those... Uh, yeah, it looks like the the big twisties uh, that you put into the ground, and they're probably just as sturdy. So you had a uh, you you all stayed the night there. Did you had a, uh, a an, an interesting evening of hangar flying and all that sort of stuff? Or uh, yeah, lots of hangar flying. There were some. Uh, it seemed to be split up in various different groups. Some people were just brought their own alcohol, uh, went into a cabin uh, away from the prying eyes of the uh, the guy running the license premises. And uh, yeah, we just had a, a real good good time. There was a couple of people we hadn't seen in a while that uh, that showed up, and uh, so it was good catching up again. And how often do you, uh, with the Aero scene, how often do you get together and do these sorts of trips? The plan right now is because uh, we're only just started and getting sorted out what we really want. But uh, the idea now is that we'd like to have a a day of flying at least once a month and try and do an away trip like this a weekend uh, twice uh, twice a year. Hmm. And that way there's enough and not everyone has to show up for all of them. But as long as we have a fair few of them, uh, there's, there's lots of choice. Because that's one of the things we I looked at a lot of other flying clubs. There's not a whole lot of flying. There's a lot of hangar flying, lots of barbecues. But uh, it's more like, oh, yeah, we'll have a barbie and we'll, we'll go, f- you know, do a quick local flight. And I'm more interested in actually going places. I guess that's um, I guess that's much like what we're trying to do here with this podcast. Is like you're trying to build a community of like-minded people and uh, get out and, and make the most of your aircraft and uh, get out and have a good time with them. 
Yeah, exactly. And we've got uh, we've got a lot of students at, at the moment who hire and find. That's great because they'll always keep coming through, and we, we really love helping them out and uh, giving them uh, uh, helping them you know along with some good contacts in the industry as well for later. And right now we're really trying to also expand the uh, the aircraft owners because there's a there there are a few that there, there's myself, there's John, there's Gary. But we're yeah we're making good progress there. We're getting some more uh, let's say uh, older and wiser pilots maybe. Which doesn't include me. I'm just, I just, you know, have my own airplane. I'm not old nor wise, and, and you know, and that's great. If we can build a, a core group like that. And, yeah, I think uh, th- there's two real aspects. See, when I started flying 22 years ago, I I was really on the end of the sort of the death of the real social aspects of flying that we don't see these days in aviation. Not not like they were in the 70s, basically. That whole community flying atmosphere. You know, the flying clubs were huge things. Just probably just before I started to fly, so probably late 70s, early 80s. And when I started flying, they were just sort of coming to their end, basically. But what people got out of those things is. You know, a lot of mentoring from uh, older pilots that just doesn't happen anymore. And so, you know, we're starting to see that now, even in aerosene. You know, we've only really been going probably three or four months. But we're starting to see that now starting to happen again, which is fantastic. Yeah, because, I mean, a community, the, the, the club social kind of thing, it, it, it just helps. You know, it gives you an excuse to get out there, gets you keeps you current. It's, it's sort of like uh, here at Royal Vic, they do the um, competition days, you know, the, the streamer cuts, the flower bombing, the um, flying with no, with no instruments and still having to do a perfect circuit, you know, all those kind of things. And that, the more you fly, the more current you are, the more uh, likely you are to be a safe pilot. Definitely. So, yeah, things like this are great for that. And yeah, if you get more like-minded people together as, a... as well, especially uh, we need to look into the competition side of things. We had some ideas, but there's also some other you know, clubs around here that have uh, flying days with competitions like the, the guys at Aldinga. And, uh, you know, we're, we're welcome to come along. So we want to be social with the other groups. And, uh, and as John was saying, the mentoring, uh, uh, a real good example is uh, Gary, one of our, our founding fathers, uh, he flies an R44 helicopter and he loves taking people up. But if you're going with flying with Gary, you're not a passenger. You either come for the planning and you do the navigating while you're in the air or, you know, you can stay home. And, uh, you know, he's, he just loves, uh, loves doing that. <laughs> a great uh, quote from one of the uh, newer students that went flying with him once. Uh, she, she said, yeah, we got lost. I said, no, no, you were lost. Gary knew exactly where he was. <laughs> he was just waiting for you to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, nice one. So, yeah, good, a good range of people and, and, and the attitudes and everything. That's great. So you got out there, you hung out. It was just the one night, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. So how was the run back? Uh, it was good. Uh, we uh, all took off well, pretty pretty early. I was I was impressed. The other pilots in commands uh, were very well behaved, and uh, they all showed up. Uh, you mean they were sober, Baz? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what he was getting at. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, so that, that worked out well. And um, well, the the plan was to go to uh, Kingston Southeast, which is a, a seaside town here in, uh, in South Australia, which has a very nice uh, bitumen runway, which is walking distance from the beach. Um, I had some other matters to attend to in the afternoon, so I, uh, I basically I just did a touch and go there. So, uh, and, and before getting there, most people either fueled up uh, at Hamilton or at Narrow Court, uh, yeah. which is what, what we did. So we went to Narrow Court, fueled up, uh, did a touch and go at Hamilton just to uh, say we've been there, and then uh, flew uh, low-level uh, coastal uh, northbound all the way to uh, Gua and uh, across the hills uh, 
back to Adelaide. And I think uh, most of the people that did go for the stop and the swim at uh, Hamilton did, uh, did much the same, didn't they, John? Kingston, you mean, Baz? Uh, sorry, Kingston, yeah, you can't go. There's not much swimming in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there was uh, the whole weekend was actually organized fairly informally. We've sort of discovered that if we leave some of the details hanging, we can adapt quickly to changing situations much better than if we stick to a schedule very tightly. Yeah. And I think the, the whole changing our minds and leaving early from the Grampians was based on the heat and it was based on, you know, we'd sort of done the asses years then, it, it, you know, there wasn't really a lot to see at the lodge itself. Um, so it was a chance to get back into the air and actually see the Grampians, which most of us did. Not everybody, but some did. But I think the funny thing about Kingston is I think we'd all passed that way. Most of us that fly from uh, Mount Gambier back to Parafield would generally fly coastal along the Coorong. Most of us fly over Kingston, but never land there. And we all seem to have this recollection that the runway was right next to the beach and we'd go there and we'd have a swim. Or when we got there, we discovered that it's about a 15-minute walk to the beach. <laughs> not literally across the road like we all assumed it was oh no and and I, I know well actually as it turns out we're even lazier than that because the local hotel put on a free shuttle bus which we used <laughs> uh, <now> you're talking. <laughs> but unfortunately kingston's not exactly what you call a swimmer's paradise there's a lot of seaweed at the beach and there's yeah. and the only place to swim is to jump off the jetty which some of us did do but uh, it wasn't exactly what we were expecting unfortunately yeah no i'm not very fond of swimming in Help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually uh, planning to go back there probably early uh, this next year, just for a weekend uh, with my wife. Because of course Kingston is a is a it's a it's a seaside resort. There's lots of B and Bs, lots of restaurants, and uh, it's got you know the big lobster. So it's a good reason to go there. And, the big uh, lobster. Yes, yeah, it's unfortunately, a- it's one of those big stupid statues of a, so- a southern rock lobster. So <laughs> I have right. to say, it is less pathetic than. The big mango or the big orange. <laughs> or the big koala. Or the big yes. pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the big Or the big rocking horse, which you can see from the air, uh, as we found out the first time I took my wife flying. She said, we'll go see the big rocking horse, which is a, a, a landmark here in, uh, in South Australia in the hills. Yes, the, uh, it's, it's a great Australian tradition, isn't it? The big yes. something to get your town on the map. Yes, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's Aussie culture at its best, Baz. You, you really need to soak that up, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I am. You know, I'm going to see the big lobster. Hey, didn't you refer to your your computer as the Big Mac in an email recently? It is the Big Mac. <laughs> oh, there you go. But it's I, not I, bigger than most of the other Macs. I don't know. I, th- I always thought there's more Aussie culture than opening up a, te- a, a uh, the lid off some locally made yogurt. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Moving on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> John, uh, you, you mentioned the glass air that you uh, flew a glass air. Um, could you tell us a bit about that aircraft? It's uh, like the Sportstar. It's not one that I'm particularly familiar with. Well, the, it's, uh, it's nothing the, like the Sportstar. Oh, no, right, the, the particular you, you, glass air that we, uh, a, a, a friend of mine and I bought was uh, the original uh, model, which is a glass air one. And the reason we bought it was that it was A, very cheap, uh, B, very fast. Uh, you know, it was it had a cruise speed of about 168 knots and uh, on a, uh, an uh, a 0360, basically. So, uh, you know, about 100, uh, 0320, about 160 horsepower, I think it was. So, um, you know, fixed pitch, tail dragger, glass air. So uh, basically a smaller version of your, your Glass Air 3 that you'd, you probably are more familiar with. I'm just looking at their website now. Which which one is that you're talking about? Well, these days the company Glass Air is actually a different company. Stoddard Hamilton started the whole Glass Air thing by building the Glass Air 1. It's the actual official model designation, I believe, is an SH2 TD. 
Right. Um, but these days, the plans and a lot of the uh, the jigs were sold to a company that's uh, Glass Air LLC that don't actually build the short Glass Air 1 like our aircraft is. They, they make a slightly stretched version that's a Glass Air 2 and a Glass Air 3 that are mainly these days tricycle undercarriage aeroplanes. Yeah, looking on their website here, they've got the, yeah, the, the 3, the S2, and they've got a Sportsman 2x2, which is a tail dragger. It looks a bit like a sort of uh, Piper Cub. Oh, yes, it's a high-wing aeroplane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, the, the Glass Air 1 is um, it's a low-wing, all-fiberglass, two-seater, in our case, tail dragger. Um, very sensitive flight controls, but quite heavy, but extremely fast. Glass Air do the, uh, famous for doing the two-weeks-to-taxi program in the States where you... You go over there and uh, you still meet the 51% rule, but uh, you're in their space using their tools, their equipment, with their people guiding and checking your work. So I don't think you can uh, really compare the aircraft, but uh, Jebiru has a, has a similar program as well. They don't advertise as much as you. Jebiru doesn't really advertise all that much what they do. Uh, but yeah, I know people that have, uh, have gone up there and I think they spend about four weeks, uh, four weeks with them to finish off their aircraft. and uh, So very similar. Yeah, I'd... I'd I'd like something like that because there's no way in heck I want to uh, make myself an aircraft without lots of adult supervision because I'm all left thumbs. I am lousy <laughs> with equipment and tooling and all that kind of stuff. But I'll I'll program the FMC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can do all the geek stuff, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll geek out on the plane, but I won't tell, mate. Make it, letting me build it is, is sort of like, yeah, I think I go through two kits just trying to get one together. <laughs> yeah. I think you'll find that most of the aircraft manufacturers now have some sort of an assisted build program. And yeah. certainly in the States, there are even aftermarket people that uh, advertise that they'll assist you building any project aircraft you want so you know that's that's quite a big market for the people that don't want to get quite as teched up on their yeah. aircraft as others do so yeah well that's that's also led to the situation in the states where you've got you know you go down there and over the course of a day you with 28 different shirts and um you know different musty hair here and have it straight here and you know all this kind of stuff and they take all the photos over the day while it looks like you're building it but it's actually their team building it <laughs> and uh just so you got all the photos so it looks like you made the 51 percent over a multiple day you know all that kind of stuff there there have been cases of that going on in the states it's been the biggest, biggest open secret in the industry surely yeah not good interesting interesting stuff stuff yeah well uh you know since we spoke to you last bez i had vowed to get out and check out the uh local recreational aviation scene and of course i haven't but uh, <laughs> i still intend to do it you mean the the one at Turin? yeah I, that's, that's actually where the texan that uh, showed up uh, with us at hamilton and the grampians uh, is based at okay. uh, Turin. that's Let's interesting see. yeah the Turin's become a bit of a ghost town in the, these days it didn't seem to be uh, they had quite a quite a slick looking operation going down there a few years ago but uh yeah they they seem to have well, i know they had a little bit of trouble with casa i believe and uh, they appear to be no more which is a shame because the the company that bought that airfield they really spent a lot of money doing that up i mean they sealed the runway for a starter I think they put in a cross runway, just a short one. Uh, they well, were with all doing the, uh, the issues that are now at uh, Moravin, you, you'd think that someone would jump at the chance of having a, a new school there where you can actually, in an hour of circuits, you know, fly an hour of circuits rather than just, you know, taxiing and holding. Oh, I agree completely. It's it's a good facility down there, and in fact, uh, I'm thinking about going flying uh, next week. And uh, with, a, with a friend of mine, we're saying we want to go and do some circuits, you know, just to go and get uh, start getting current again. And he's saying, oh, you know, it's it's going to be a, an issue to to, um, to get into the circuit there if it's a good day at Moorabbin. I said, that's no problem. Oh, yeah. We can just scoot down to Turin, and it's like a ten minute flight. It's not far to go. Yeah, and we exactly. can do all the circuits we want. Yeah, no, t- Moorabbin's just getting congested to all heck. You you know, you you even get denied startup and things like that if you want to do circuits. 
there. But there's quite a bit going on at Lilydale, uh, a bit at Coldstream. The problem with Lilydale, especially 18 right, uh, sorry, 36 right, I landed on that the other day. My God, was that bouncy and bumpy. I uh, wanted to throw the yak throw straight back into the air, I tell you, when we were landing there. Then Coldstream, the problem there is that it's gravel. So you've got to really watch your uh, the, that you don't suck up a lot of chips, uh, you know, rocks into the prop. Uh, even with a tail drag, you've got to be careful. Coldstream and Lilydale are, are pretty busy doing um, doing training and things. MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowships, based out of Coldstream. But then you've got TIAB, uh, where Judy Pay has her old aircraft company. There's, few uh, warbirds out there at uh, TIAB. To the north, not too far from around the Sunbury area. Uh, that's where Stephen Pam goes out to do his uh, flying. And w- whenever we all meet up at Morabin, he's just there going, oh, my God, I don't know what it would be like to fly here with so many aircraft. And that's on a quiet day, yeah. let alone a good day. Yeah. When he's doing his flying in, in the Stork, the little LSA Stork, he's the only one there. Well, that's a point. You don't really see that many recreational aircraft at Morabin, do you, Grant? It's, um, that's, that's really more the domain of those more satellite airports, so uh, which, which makes them more important. And, yeah, it is a shame that Turretin has just seemed to be wasting away there. It would be a great opportunity for somebody to set up a, an operation there with, with RA. Uh, the operator that was there before, he had uh, two or three Jabiroos, if, if memory serves, but uh, they're certainly not there now. I've not seen them in quite some time. Well, there are a few Japaroos at Morabin, um, both RA and VH. Then there's a few sports stars um, at Morabin. The Royal Vic's got a few of those. You know, I've, I've seen a few Japaroos and a few sports stars and a few other um, RA-type aircraft at Morabin, but uh, nowhere near as much as the Cessnas and the Pipers and so on. How, how is it at Parafield? I mean, Baz, you're not, you're not, you were saying last time we were chatting about flying RA out of Parafield. You definitely weren't the only, your machine's not one of the only ones out there doing RA, is it? I think it is, actually. Really? Yeah, okay. I, I would say it's the only RA aircraft regularly operating out of Parafield. No way. Yeah. I, th- I thought there were more because, you know, at the cl- at the school and all that kind of stuff, I thought they had a couple of them. No, it's the only one at the, at the school. We do see them coming in every once in a while. But, yeah, you have to have uh, those people flying. It would have to be on a PPL or higher to, uh, to fly in there. Wow. Yeah, there you so you're the only one, dude. Did you have any other uh, RA issues you wanted to talk about, Baz? No, I've been I've been out of the loop a bit. So yeah, once we, I get we, we settled probably... in here again, yeah. I'll start getting some sleep again. <laughs> ah, I've heard of that. <laughs> John, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, no, not this stage. No, no. Yeah. We, we might... So maybe if we uh, wrap up with a little bit about uh, just telling people that to, uh, if they're here in South Australia, come to uh, through Aerocene and uh, check us out and... Is it, John, is it, is it too early to say anything about the Parafield Air Show? No, no, we can do that. I actually had a meeting today with most of the organising committee. Uh, we've got a definite date now. There is definitely going to be an air show next year at Parafield. Okay, well, we want to lead uh, into that. Uh, the date will be March 21st, which is the weekend after the Clipsal 500. We've um, we had to change the date at least 12 times because <laughs> it clashed with everything. Uh, we did we did contemplate the idea of actually having an Anzac Day air show, but there's too many problems with doing something like that. So so we are definitely locked into the 21st of March. That's the Sunday, the 21st of March, which is also right at the same time as the Diggers Rest Houdini celebrations to celebrate 100 years of. Of flying in Australia, uh, the Hamilton Aero Club 50th anniversary. Yes. And a Navex squadron flyaway from Swan Hill, Murray Bridge, etc., and uh, flying from Yarrawonga. But that's a whole different thing. Yeah, different stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So I have a calendar of aviation events, so I can figure out where do I want to go today. 
<laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's good that you pointed those out. Fortunately, there's nothing on there that I'm going to be too concerned about. Lots of just local people who have an interest in aviation. It won't be a full-on show uh, like some other air shows. It'll be mostly static displays with some aerial displays. Yeah, the, the problem we've got with Parafield is that Parafield's suffering from the same problem that places like Moorabbin. Uh, we're slowly getting encroached by the surrounding environment. These days, if we close the airfield and we had a full-blown air show, 90% of the spectators would stand outside and watch. Um, so, and, and the reason for holding this whole show is to raise money for the, the Jet Fighter Museum at Parafield. That's just to keep the doors open, basically. Yep. What we've decided to do instead is hold flying displays, but not not close the airport for six hours. We've spoken to the controllers and we've spoken to CASA that what we will do is we'll actually close the airfield for about five minutes every half hour and do some sort of flying display and then open it up again for circuit traffic so that we're not going to be interfering with any of the training schools if they want to get away and... Uh, arrive they can still do that as long as they carry 10 minutes of holding and uh it, it means people still get to see some flying displays but with sort of discouraging the people from setting up camp around the fences Excellent. and yeah. also it, uh, there might not be that many flying displays but there will be uh, joy flights that will be taken off all during the day so people can actually uh, on, the, on the day get themselves a seat in one of these planes and of course it's interesting to see also for those who aren't flying but uh, to see these these warbirds and, and other aircraft regularly uh, taxiing out and uh, going for a bit of a fly. And of course uh, any other poor sucker who just happens to be taking off or landing there gets that huge audience watching, especially on landing. There's nothing quite like that to uh, make you worry. Fortunately, Parafield's actually, the arrangement of Parafield makes it Difficult to watch that closely, so uh, yeah, it's not it's not a big problem, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's always because it's always fun when you you know that there's a bar on a second floor looking out over the whole field somewhere. It's, I've been to a couple of airstrips like that in the US. Everyone's out on the balcony. You come in and do a crap landing, and guess what? They're all there going, "Yeah, sucker!" And you just know, you know. <laughs> Hmm. Yes, but uh, yeah, so so that is the plan. It's to to have a sort of an air. We're not actually going to call it an air show. I think we'll call it an air display because that's technically more correct. But uh, well, a pageant sort of implies a day of flying, and I don't really want to uh, do that either. So. Uh, John, where can people find information about that? Uh, about what's going to be happening there at uh, Parafield? The uh, website that escapes my mind just at the moment. We're actually in the process of rebuilding the the Jet Fighter Museum at Parafield. Have a website, and what we'll do is we'll up update that with information about the show. If anyone uh, wants to visit the Aerosene website, that's www.aerosene.com.au and click on the flying group tab, um, you'll actually go to our blog site. I'm, I'm actually putting up more information at the moment for our group about what's happening because uh, a lot of the Aerosene people will naturally be involved in the organising of that of that show frankly they're interested in hearing how it's going so for the time being if you want to know how it's going it's probably worth going to the aerosene website as time goes on we will update the the jet fighter museum's website and i'll also post the links from aerosene to that and the cool. uh, jet fighters uh, website is just uh, classicjets.com classicjets.com okay yeah, so yeah. hopefully we'll have a big uh, presence there with uh, with AeroScene to get some more people interested, hopefully some more pilots, but also uh, just uh, enthusiasts, people who might want to learn how to fly. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, as a personal interest, I'll be uh, promoting the sporty there, getting uh, getting people to, uh, to, learn how, to learn how to fly in it. AeroScene's real mission statement, above all else, is to network people. What we what we really want to be is we want to be the middlemen in amongst all of the groups that are out there. So what we'd really like to do is get 
most of the flying groups in South Australia talking to each other on a more regular basis and eventually expand that into Victoria and probably into New South Wales. That basically means bringing in people from all different uh, backgrounds. It, it doesn't really matter that you're not a pilot. If you're an aviation enthusiast, there's still a place for you at Aero Cool. Excellent. That's, and uh, what was that website handy. again? What was that website again, guys? So www.aerocene.com.au, but aerocene.com.au specifically is a it's a company that um, is actually a, a helicopter charter company. But the flying group is a blog that's actually hanging off that website. So there is a flying group tab that you need to click on to go to the blog. We'll put a link in the in the show notes, and uh, we'll just go straight to the flying group. Well, uh, it was great that you could join us here in the podcast tonight, John, and uh, we certainly hope we can have you back again to uh, maybe uh, have that comparison between the Yak and the uh, the Nan Chang. That sounds like a rather entertaining conversation coming up. Well, I'm straining at the neck to get into that one, so I'd be quite happy to come back. <laughs> we'll be more than happy to have you, mate. And, uh, Baz, we will talk to you again in a few weeks when you've uh, got that computer room of yours sorted out a bit better. Absolutely. I'll, I'll go uh, straight to uh, Ikea after this and uh, get myself some nice, uh, nice curtains and... Uh, <laughs> Stuff to hang on the wall. Excellent, guys. Thanks very yeah. much for that, and we'll talk to you again soon. Right. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, too. See you later. Thanks, guys. Ciao. So there we go, mate. I know I keep saying this. I've got to get into the RA Oz scene. I think it's just the most logical step for people like myself trying to get back into the game from the cost-effectiveness side of it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely using the uh, RA Oz as uh, yet another reason for me to uh, watch my personal weight and balance limitations. The RA Oz aircraft, a lot of them, especially down at the cheaper end of learning to fly, don't carry a lot with an instructor and fuel. So the less I weigh, the more I can carry. Makes it better for me. But uh, between that and aerobatics, that's the reason I'm losing weight. Okay, weight and balance. Well, I'm sure as soon as RAOs can get, say, a uh, C5 Galaxy certified, then uh, I'll have no problem <laughs> flying them. Ah, oh, come on, mate. I think just... You, you, you didn't have that uh, Piper Warrior leaning too hard to the left, did you? Oh, uh, well, it took a, a little bit of extra control input, shall we say? Oh, okay. Yeah, I used to get that from my instructor all the time, and last time I went up in the uh, in the Alpha, uh, my mate was saying, oh, it seems to be leaning to your side a bit, mate. <laughs> well, he's just being nasty. Yeah, what a friend's for, man. What a friend's for. <laughs> anyway, folks, that's everything we have for you on this week's edition of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Owens Up, Baz and John, David Optimal, David Vanderhoof, and everybody else who's contributed this week. And, folks, of course, the new segment with Anthony Simmons. If you can jump onto the forums and leave some feedback, good or bad, uh, we're always looking for ways to improve the show. So if you didn't like what you heard, well, um, Grant's personal email address. No, we won't go there. Will we? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah. But, no, seriously, folks, we want to hear feedback. We want to hear if this anything that you didn't like uh, we have had some criticisms come through and we've taken them on had we've a couple of beers gone and cried and sulked in the corner and then ignored them so just please do send them in it's all great to hear and uh, you, you are helping us become better at what we do uh, we like to think we have improved slightly since the very first episode way back in July and I know that when I listen to it I cringe a lot more to the early ones than the old ones so uh, I think there is some improvement and your feedback definitely helps that absolutely folks don't forget we're also uh, offering advertising space on the show now folks if you operate a business and we're like to advertise on the show then uh, certainly contact us here at the podcast it's the uh, cheapest and most cost effective advertising you'll ever do so uh, certainly give us a call if you'd be interested in that we'd love to hear from you cool all right got anything else to say well steve do i have more to say i always have more to say but in deference to the fact that we're at the end of the show i'm going to take a step back and i'm going to let you have the final word are you interested in doing the final word mate let me just get my vocal cords ready okay well while you're off limbering up i'll say don't forget folks if you're out there looking around for new interesting stuff remember this it's what's down under that counts you've been listening to playing crazy down under hosted by steve visher and grant mccarran 
Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Every bloke should get married eventually. Nobody should be happy forever. No, we shouldn't. Should. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you carefree, happy young guys. Just just you wait. You'll be a cynical old bum like the rest of us. Yeah, that might be a cut point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are we going to call them? The dropkick, the drongo, the peanut, the loser, the loony, uh, the I can't believe it's not, it's not you know how. <laughs> I, I'm amazed they haven't done it for aviation yet. Oh, well, there's your new task, mate. You can get out there and become a lobbyist. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, it's a, We're struggling it, just to make this, Owen. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll add it to my post-lotto win task list. There you go. Yep. And oh, on, my clock's digital, man. What's that mean? Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'll, I'll explain it. it to you later, Grant. When we <laughs> what, what's, a, what's, a, what's a digital watch? <laughs> You're scaring me, man. You're scaring me. <laughs> There's a very good sundial in the park at Adelaide. I saw it the other day and I felt quite at home. <laughs> oh, man. It's, uh, That's I, a definite I, worry, I tell you. Dude, you can't be a Luddite when you're flying that. <laughs> I, I, I choose my battles. <laughs> so uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. That sucked. <laughs> so, There's an outtake. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing new. Uh, Grant, king of outtakes. <laughs> Yeah, is that for a plug? Yeah, 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 man. That's bigger than the one in my bathtub. <laughs> God. There's another outtake. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, I've got stacks to say, but in, in, in difference to the fact that uh, we're running up against our allotted time. Hi, Jack. Uh, oh, God, that sounds... No, <laughs> uh, I didn't want to hijack the communication, mate. Yeah. How was that, mate? I don't know, man. I don't know. That was pretty good. I think we need to... Uh, le- oh, there you go, folks. Another thing for feedback. Who does the better what's down under the count? Steve or Grant? Ooh. <laughs> High wing or low wing? Here we go again. Unbelievable. Cheers, folks. We'll see you all again next week. Ciao, y'all. <laughs>